Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's 2023 now, and uh, since we did, I think, six, maybe five episodes last year, <laughs> we're going to try to do 12 this year. Yeah. Yes. We're going to try to... Back in the saddle again, as they say. We're, we're going to try to double our our uh, our output. <laughs> Um, and one of the, and, and, and the way we want to do that this year is to have a little bit more of a focus for each one where we kind of pick a thing and then, you know, give each other some time to watch the thing or read the thing and get some thoughts together and have something interesting to say about the thing rather than doing what we were doing or it's just like, eh, should we do an episode? You got anything to talk about? And it's like, guess I watched a show. All right. <laughs> Um, because it's easy to put those sorts of things off, but like, if I force you to watch three Evangelion movies, you know, I feel like, (laughs) is it only three? It might be four. I think it's four. I think it's Um, four. I think it's four. Uh, if I, you know, it's like, okay, now we kind of have to do the thing, you know? So, um, so what we decided we were going to talk about this time is, uh, the latest it is still the latest, right? I mean, I know he writes a book and a half a week, but... Technically, no. <laughs> God damn it. All right, how uh, about this? The latest major Brandon uh-huh. Sanderson book. Yes. Um, and for some of our listeners, that might be a little niche, but, you know, we're still fun to listen to. And uh, if you haven't read any Sanderson, you won't remember anything. So no, you won't really spoilers aren't an issue. We've been talking about this guy a lot. Yeah. And I would highly recommend it to... Uh, I mean, at least some of it to most people who like have a vague passing appetite for fantasy or sci-fi. Yeah, I, I would I would certainly recommend uh, if you like uh, if you like just good, like easy, readable, uh, but also, you know, pretty well put together uh, fantasy. Uh, this is the seventh full novel in the Mistborn series. Um, and the Mistborn series is uh, the Brandon Sanderson series that I could stick with Mm -hmm. (laughs) you are much more a uh full spectrum sanderson fan yeah Um, definitely full fanboy category over here i could not get through stormlight archives which is more traditional fantasy more like what we would think of as like high fantasy swords and sorcery yeah vaguely medievalish setting whereas mistborn is um at least the first trilogy um it's a little bit more like pre-industrial setting, not as, you know, fantasy. It takes place in a city. Yeah, um, a little more maybe renaissance kind of, yeah. you know, that kind of transitioning time period, pre-modern, but not right. like castles and dragons and, you know. That's exactly, yes, yes. Um, uh, and um, there's a lot of a lot of magic, um, but they're, they're, they're just very good. And um, interestingly, the Mistborn series uh there was the first trilogy of novels and then the second quote-unquote trilogy which wasn't supposed to be a trilogy was just supposed to be like one book uh Mm -hmm. but anyway the sanderson's larger plan is to tell the story of this world uh called scadriel which is the name of the planet uh yeah scadriel um Mm -hmm. over the course of different eras so the first era was, again, this kind of like renaissance pre-industrial, you know, maybe equivalent to like early 1800s in our world, um, but with a lot of magic and 
cool anime shit going on. Um, and then, uh, but the this latest run of books, which was wasn't even supposed to be a trilogy, but now it's four novels, um, <laughs> takes place in more of an industrial revolution setting in the same world. But now um, they, you know, he does some really interesting things where like the characters that you were reading in the first three books, like some of them are now just like major historical figures or religious figures um, in the in the world. And you see how the world like starts to try and like more like scientifically figure out how the magic system works and bend the rules of the magic. And um, it's it's really interesting and not something I've, I don't think I've ever seen before in a, you know, a, a sci fi series like this, where you really get that you really understand like the passage of time and the impact of technology and just you see the long tail impacts of different characters um, actions. Yeah. And I'll say that the end of the first trilogy has a pretty, pretty climactic yeah. moment. And we really can't. It's going to be spoiled in this. So if you if you were like, you know what, that sounds really cool. And I kind of want to go into it, you know, go read this, seven. This books. episode will be. No, you can read three <laughs> books and then, you know, whatever. But this episode well, will be here, you know, forever, probably. So, uh, you know, don't just want to give that that minor one because there's it's impossible to talk about it without. Yes. I mean, I, the truth is, I don't know that I, I think we would just put up spoiler warnings for every Mistborn book. Yeah, because yep. we're we're going to be talking about book seven uh, in, in the series. So we're going to spoil that book. But obviously there might be things that would spoil the first six as well. Yeah. And I will um, avoid spoilers for other series with maybe some very light 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 sort of yeah. and gentle things for stormlight and we'll do our best yeah and um, because if to further elaborate if you didn't we talked about this a long time ago but brandon sanderson has a broader plan called the cosmere and that most of his series take place within a broader same universe yes. um, on different planets at different times and you know there is a story being told behind the scenes kind of lightly you know Think of the MCU, right? Interconnected, you know, maybe coalescing in some points, you know, right now they're mostly separate and you get little Easter eggs, little, little things. This book probably has arguably the most crossover. Yeah. Um, Stormlight's getting there, but uh, yeah, so that's a really compelling thing for me, although it also is a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh I think we'll talk about that in this yes, episode. Yes, I sure. think we might. Um, but generally speaking, the, the the books are are fairly self-contained. Like, it's not mm -hmm. like, I mean, at least so far, you know, you can read all of the Mistborn books and not know or care about anything that's going on in any other Brandon Sanderson book. Yeah. But there is uh, there is the broader, you know, uh, thing. And, and, and the basic gist of it is that imagine a, a, a galaxy or a universe with a bunch of different planets all at various stages of technological development. And each planet kind of has its own magic system. But all of those magic systems derive from the same kind of uh you know, divine magical source. So they all have a lot of kind of little commonalities, but um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we'll definitely sure get into that a little bit, but uh, Sanderson is very known for his magic systems. He takes a very like, I'm going to put in air quotes, scientific approach to magic in a way where he sets rules and 
you know, makes these kind of elaborate systems. Yep. Um, and he tries to stick to them, you know, kind of as a as a jumping off point and tries to avoid like the Deus Ex stuff. Now, you know, that when the story deems it, you know, and and I kind of have a new you know how there's that saying, Greg, that's like, what is it? You know, any sufficiently advanced science or technology uh, yeah. ends up looking like magic. Yes. My <laughs> my new kind of quote apply to Sanderson in between this book and a pre in the most recent story book, it's like any sufficiently complicated magic system ends up also just kind of feeling like deus ex magic. <laughs> just like, oh, I guess well, you can do that. <laughs> and, 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 and I do think when we get into the broader conversation, that's definitely going to come up. I have some notes on that. Um, mm-hmm. But while we're still in our spoiler free zone, um, if you like, you know, a fantasy setting with a magic system with like very clearly defined rules and that's interesting um uh sanderson is is certainly the writer for you like they are Mm -hmm. um you know it's almost like he's designing a video game or like a tabletop rpg every time he does world building like um and that creates some really interesting things especially within action scenes Again, you know, calling it back to anime, like there's a lot of anime where, you know, you watch it and, it, you know, you learn there's all these episodes where it's just like exposition about how the hero's powers work and how the villain's powers work and um, the different things they can do. And if you do this and I do that and then this person does that, here's what happens. There's a lot of that in Sanderson. Um, and uh, again, we're going to talk about, I think, some of the limitations with that uh, longtime fans of the show will know that Andrew is prefers more of the hard and fast, like more like RPG rules, magic systems of your Sanderson's uh, or your uh, Patrick Rothfuss's. I know, you know, <laughs> we have our issues with Rothfuss, but um, you tend to prefer more of that side of things. I prefer I tend to prefer a little bit more of the fuzzy wuzzy, never fully explained you know, some magic kind of happened style from like Joe Abercrombie or China Miaville, where it's just like, "Eh, it's fine. Um, But anyway, yeah, that's fair. Um, All right. So uh, I think we've we've preambled enough Um, uh, spoilers for here on out for everything in the world. So if you like being surprised by stuff, don't listen or go go watch the things and read the things and then come back. Um, all right. So oh, wait, can I do one more little, little yes. just like just for context? Um, because we got as you know, as much introduction as we can possibly do. Um, if you like if you, or if you have read some Sanderson, I'd highly recommend his podcast. He has very yes. interesting. I'll probably reference a few things he talks about in there because it's called uh, um, Intentionally Blank. And he does it with another author who now works for him um, to friends from, you know, college or whatever. And uh, they have a lot of really good conversations about all kinds of stuff. They're very much like this podcast, actually. Um, and down even down to a little bit to the personalities. Um, hmm. Which one kinda, am I? Hmm. Not Sanderson. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a little creepy because sometimes literally he'll say things and I'm just like, I was thinking that like it's it's bizarre sometimes. Uh, but anyway, um, that and and also um, he uh, is. There's going to be adaptations of this stuff at some point as well. Um, He's been working on it for years and has been trying to. He is very aware (laughs) that if you botch it, you only get one shot. And for him and looking at the success of the MCU and, you know, kind of his place in, in similar similarities to that, he really thinks, I think anyway, he hasn't said this, but I assume he's like, this can be 
big, you know, and I'm not just going to like take the first offer and ship it and just try and get it up there. Like, I want this to be the next Game of Thrones kind of thing. Plus MCU, you know, we'll see if that happens or not. But just as like a little bit of context for where he's at, he was hoping there was going to have be announcements by the end of this year. And he's like, honestly, Hollywood's really fucking weird. And I don't even know there'll be announcements by the end of next year, but it's happening at some point. I <laughs> and think, I assume it will be Mistborn first because it's the most adaptable, I'd say. I I think it's, it's certainly, I mean, I think you could get there with Stormlight, mm-hmm. but... I think just like if I was a producer right now and I would I would say I'm not putting out anything right now with like guys in armor on horseback. I'm just yeah. not touching that. I You know, this this other setting, I think, is, you know, the, the more urban fantasy um, is going to be a much uh, people are going to be much more psyched about this um, than Stormlight. I, yeah. I, that, that makes total sense to me. I I. Honestly, I think he should just go the animated route. Me too. Um, because uh, Mistborn, especially at the end, it's just anime. He's just <laughs> writing anime fight scenes. And his, generally speaking, his his action scenes are very well written. Yeah. Uh, they're very exciting. And there's a lot of just like, he has a really cool, a really good grasp on making characters do like cool looking shit and anime is much better at like just making action look amazing than live action yeah Uh, especially the kind of live action where you end up with a tv series yeah uh for sure uh, yeah yeah i'll be curious to see it's going to be interesting but um i mean he knows he's talked a lot about how like how massively different his the adaptations have to be from his works and you know i do agree animated route would probably be better but then again, he's usually not one to shy away from like going you know, swinging big. Sure. Uh, he's got the highest Kickstarter of all time at something like 15 million dollars. So like, pff, I mean, if that wasn't a big signal to a bunch of executives places for a bunch of fucking oh, yeah. there's, books, like, there's a mm, lot of money here, but <laughs> there's um, money here. But yeah. So anyway, let's talk about it. All right. All right. So we pick up six years after the last book, Bands of Mourning. Um, This is the fourth book in this kind of setting. uh, And this is intended to be the last um, before they move on to another era down the road. So we'll refer to this as era two. First one being era one. There is an intention to be four eras in Mistborn. Right. And the next one. So this and this era is a little bit of like Old West and a little bit of Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I would say it's like technology wise, like teens, 20s a little bit. Yeah. You know, with some remnants of like older stuff. The first book is is really a Western. Yeah. First two even, I think, Mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, are kind of like Westerns. But in this one, we're having uh, like there are like fights in a downtown city where they're like throwing cars at each other, mm-hmm. which is fine. It, it It's fine. There's magic in this world. I don't really mind if you jump from Wild West to cars in a decade. Totally yeah. fine. Anyway. Yeah. And the third era isn't from what I hear is tended to be like a 1980s ish cyberpunk kind of take. And then the fourth era is intended to be. Uh, just full like sci-fi faster than light travel like and it's going to be i think one of the last things in the cosmere hmm. um because you just start traveling between planets you're going to start ta- running other people i guess uh not that that stops them in this yeah i mean so, we're kind of already there right yeah oh yeah i mean 
but it's hard to, you know, well, right. It's complicated. You can't, they, they can't do, uh, it seems like in this there, there's, they've certainly started introducing like interworld travel, but I think it's done more through like portals and mm, dipping yeah, more into magic-y. like, yes. Um, so it's not something where you're going to be able to move like, you know, uh, you know, armies. fleets of battleships, armies, you know, uh, the sorts of things you associate with, you know, more like uh, uh, traditional outer space sci-fi. Yep. And also, so like Greg said, the magic in this is it all stems from one source. Potentially, it, it's kind of labeled generally as like the raw energy of it is called investiture and you, but it's really just acts like energy. It can come in many forms. It's interchangeable in certain situations, but it's very hard to transport that between worlds through the magic for whatever reason. But maybe not so hard if you travel physically. Right. So, like apparently you can put it in a jar. Yes, that is kind of the most. But there's limitations on that, too. So like it all comes from different, you know, different things. But yeah, we will try not to <laughs> get too nerd out of that. But a little, well, maybe a little, little digressions here and there. But uh, I can't right. help myself. So, but the the plot generally, yes, there is a um, more or less it's been determined. There is there are these things. I don't even know where to start, man. So hard. Okay. So here's so so I'll let 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 me try to give to give my summary. So we have our heroes, Wax and Wayne. Wax is Batman. You know, yeah, Batman, but not a but not crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, former Wild West lawman, also a wizard, now a senator, and mm-hmm. also super rich. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got his sidekick Wayne, who is you know comes from a poor background, uh, is has very good um, uh, like pickpocket skills and like impersonation disguise skills, um. Uh, he has some magic powers of his own, mainly involving like super healing and, uh, like time manipulation. Like he can create bubbles of slow time, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Wax's powers, he can, uh, he basically has Magneto powers <laughs> and well, he can uh, only push. That's important. Okay. <laughs> so he can only, he has Magneto powers, but he, but only in one direction, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, Okay, you know what? Those are the rules. Those are the rules. Um, uh, and then what's his second power? Uh, he can make himself, he can store his weight yes. in his, so he can become like light as a feather or heavy as lead. Right, which basically means he can do cool anime jumps. Yeah, between his two, and, and the interaction of the two powers here is what yes. is very cool. You know, in the first series, you know, the full misboards, as they're called, had 16 powers, hypothetically, where here they only really have two more or less yes um so those are our heroes and um they are um investigating a criminal organization known as the set which has popped up in the previous books although now um very similar to james bond you know specter was always behind the scenes and then now we'll actually go up against Spectre. So now we're interacting more directly with the set. We're understanding. We're learning what the set's larger plan is. Um, so uh, the book uh, is, is structured a little bit like kind of a race against time kind of mystery. There's a literal ticking clock with a bomb. Um, uh, and we're learning that, of course, Wax's sister, Telson, is the big boss of the set. 
because because this is a book and of course they have to be related um we also know that uh there are uh, in the in the cosmere books gods are uh, a lot closer to mortals than they might be in other universes um and they like interact like they're having conversations with the characters all the goddamn time <laughs> um so there's the good god uh harmony who we've known for many books we're also introduced to a bad god named trell and or autonomy it's never quite clear uh we'll talk about that too but essentially the set is working for the bad god autonomy uh basically also, and this is also a little muddled, which maybe we'll talk about, but basically, uh, Telson wants to prove herself to the bad god by blowing up the, uh, by blowing up Gotham City. Uh, Elendel is the city in, in this. Uh, she's gonna blow up the city with a bomb. Um, a, a magical magic bomb. Nuke. <laughs> yes, a magical nuclear bomb. Uh, which is fine. And, um, so our heroes, um, so there's Wax and Wayne, and then there's also, uh, Marisy, who is Wax's, uh, sister-in-law. She's basically a cop. She has some powers of her own. Uh, she's like a cop detective type. And they're all kind of trying to unravel this mystery and stop the bomb. Um, and yeah, that's the basic plot. Yeah. Yep. And, um, for a little bit of context, in this Cosmere world, there was once one big capital G God. Uh, and at some point he was split into 16 shards. Yes. Harmony. Are- yeah. That each have a piece of that God's like intent or personality or, or like kind of like raw emotional, right. you know, whatever, I guess, intent yeah. or they use. Um, Harmony has two preservation and ruin, which go together to make harmony, I guess. Sure. <laughs> and then the bad god is from a different world and it's autonomy. And they more or less describe it as she actually is the god of rugged individualism. <laughs> yeah, I, I I want to get into the politics of this book so bad, but I just want to make sure we get the um, we get the uh, we get the larger plot and like setting details out of yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, um, but more or less our heroes, they, you know, they're investigating this stuff. They get some assistance from a couple different, you know, Harmony himself, another organization called the Ghost Bloods. Talk about some, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, eventually they, in lots of twists and turns, they both stop the kind of magical invasion from autonomy and also stop the nuke via Wayne um, sacrificing himself using his special magic to stop the nuke, yes. which, which was going on a ship to the main place. Yes. And and the invasion subplot. Um, and this is one of my problems with the book. But like, it's like, OK, so autonomy like wants like, you know, um, or Telson wants to like prove herself to autonomy by blowing up Ellendale which will convince autonomy not to just do her like regular ass invasion. I think that's the idea. Yeah. But then like, the invasion's kind of already happening and Marisy has to stop it. But it, it's one of the things that, uh, that this book suffers from. I feel like where it puts, a, there's a few too many hats on hats in this book. Yeah. Right. Yep. Like the plot of like, Hey, she's in league with the bad God. And the plan is to blow up the city. We're good. I don't need, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) also this other thing of like, oh, but there's also an invasion. But like, if that's what the god wants to do, why is Telson trying to like 
do a different thing. Why do we need two? You know, it, it just seems it's like it's too much and it gets distracting and it feels weird because it's like, why would you why are we doing both? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the invasion storyline needed a little more time in the oven to be integrated in the story appropriately. Part of me is like, well, the maybe there's a intentional or not quite intentional point here around like when your God is about rugged individualism, you might have some competing plans. And because of that, it might things get might get fucked up, which I could, you know, maybe see a little bit. Right. Um, but yeah, it, the justification for like, well, I'm going to blow up the city to prove that I'm a badass so that I can be in charge of the planet and not have the whole planet get taken over and said, I'll kind of be in charge. It's like, okay, I guess that just felt a little bit weak to me as like a justification. Right. And also when we're being introduced to autonomy and how she works and what she wants, and we're getting introduced to her for the first time in this book. Yeah. And then, you know, to have this like complex Telson, like trying to think one or two steps ahead of autonomy. It's like, if I had no, if you know what I mean, if I was already aware of autonomy from the previous book and now Telson cooks up this wild plan, it might feel a little bit more natural. Mm hmm. Um, but also it also feels like the way autonomy is explained, which is more like it seems like her thing is just like constantly pitting people against each other to see who's going to come out the best. Right. Yeah. Like, wouldn't like competition she have, is breed success or whatever. Right. Wouldn't she have a couple Telson types all working on their own dastardly plans? Yeah. Yeah. That just seems more in line with what we're told rather than like, oh, no, then she's just going to do her own thing, which is just a straight up invasion. But it's also like, but that doesn't really jive with what you're telling us about the way she works. Right. Right. And if she's going to take over a planet, wouldn't she do it in a more like autonomy ass way <laughs> than just mm -hmm. be like, hey, I sent a bunch of guys over and they're going to kill people until until I can take the planet somehow. But yeah. also, if they're gods, if she's a god, why does she need to kill all the inhabitants? What does that have to do with anything? Why does there need to be an invasion? How does that benefit a god? Right? Yeah. It's so like I'm saying, so some of these things just like you say, feel like they could have used a little bit more time in the oven or didn't need to be there at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I appreciate it. It's weird because like this is one of those books, you know, which doesn't it's not uncommon to have happen where it's like. I really enjoy the individual like plot lines and arcs of our characters, even if it doesn't all really quite fit together well. Like I enjoy seeing yes. Mer like I enjoy reading Maris's the book where like every chapter I was like, cool, I like reading about this person. Where some books, you know, you're like, I like this plot line more than another plot line. You go to whoever and you're like, all right, you know, but like I really I actually like I think Maris's like a really fun, good character. I really like yeah. her. I like her plot line, even though it's like by the end of it, I was like, I don't know. That didn't like again, that didn't really like pan out how I wanted it to. But I like the like the beat by beat of it. Yes, it's fun. And same for Wax and Wayne, obviously. Yeah, it's and I think that that um, um, that is one of Sanderson's really good strengths, especially when you're talking about like, you know, the, the, when he's writing on such a grand scale, you know, it's like you could imagine. And honestly, I think this is where Stormlight falls apart, in my opinion, is that in a lot of cases, just that kind of like chapter to chapter, page to page stuff is just a lot harder to get through. It's not as much fun. I don't know if it's the characters or the setting or, or you know, what he's trying to get done in each book. But it's just, yeah, the Mistborn books and, and this one as well are just they're much more readable and just fun. But they this one suffers, I think, when you start to zoom out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe there's some explanations that I'm not aware of. Okay. So I don't think it's critical reading, but autonomy 
is from a planet called Alden. Is that right? And this is the one that's the, the comic book, right? Yes. Is White Sands is the comic. There's and, and he's going to put out a prose version someday, he said. Um, probably Shadow Written, which is what he's starting to do now. Um, Shadow he, Written. Yeah, he's hiring people to write books for him because he doesn't have enough time to write all the books he wants to write. Oh, does he call it? I mean, are you? Is it you mean ghostwriting or is, is Sorry. he using the word? OK, ghost I just writing, wanted to make maybe. sure he didn't have like no, his no, own no. wacky ass version no. of ghostwriting called I mean, Shadow he, Writing. And don't get me wrong. He gives credit like oh, of, uh, course, he, of course he did yeah. it for um, in the wheel the, of time. Well, he wrote that for the last four books as him and Robert right. Jordan. But yeah, so he's kind of doing that where like he is now hiring authors, oh, yeah. which was to the, work for his company because he's like, I can't get all this shit done in time. Which, which was the I mean, come on, that had to be the. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. He's got a plan. He's like, I'm trying to finish it by the time. I'm, I think he said his plan is to finish the Cosmere by the time he's 72. That's Are like you his... listening, Mr. Martin? <laughs> this is a thing yes. that can be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you Although listening? Although the window is closing on having Brandon Sanderson finish the Song of Ice and Fire, sadly. Which yeah, is, I think, um, what we all wanted. I mean, it's it wouldn't be the best fit. Honestly. It's Abercrombie. Yeah, it's Abercrombie. It's Abercrombie. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. I was listening to the podcast and Sanderson was talking about they're doing an episode about like their early books they wrote and like their kind of pre-publishing days and like trying to get published and like the kind of, you know, shifts they went through, phases they went through. And there's a there, Sanderson said he has a grimdark phase because that's it was like post, you know, Song of Ice, like post Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, like everyone wanted grimdark. That was like the only thing people were interested in. He's like, so all the publishing companies were saying, we want George R. R. Martin, but like a little shorter and a little <laughs> bit easier to read. <laughs> and maybe, and just, maybe finish them. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, you know, he's like, okay, okay. So he tries. Like, I was really bad at it. It's not my style. Like, yeah, I can't, I can't well. imagine what that would have been but like. He's like, I just wasn't good at it. He's like, he's like, he's like, they were looking for Joe. That's who they were looking for. Like they were looking <laughs> for Joe Abercrombie <laughs> and they got him and he's amazing. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he, you know, uh, anyway, he, um, this, there's comics out. I have the first yes. one. I've read it, but it's, they're called white sands, uh, is a prose version sometime, but I don't think you get a lot of like autonomy stuff in that. Like it's still, I don't think you get, there's not a lot like that you need to know from that in this that I'm aware of at least. So it's not like there's something missing here. And even if there was, it should be explained. Like there's a lot of Cosmere shit in this, but the nice thing about why I think this book does a pretty good job with it is because our characters don't know anything about anything. And so therefore we're kind of learning with the character and we really only need to know as much as the character does in the moment. So it kind of works for me in that way. Uh, Yes. I think that that it, I, I think he got most of the way there, but I don't think he really stuck the landing. There are a lot of, there were a lot of elements, especially once we were introduced to the ghost bloods who are a super team of people from the various worlds with all of their wacky powers all mm-hmm. teamed up to like save the world. Yeah. Fine. Great. Show me the super team. Um, one of the members is written a little too, he's trying a little too hard on the comic relief on one of them, but, uh, um, so we meet them and, you know, we're, we're meeting them through Marisy. So they're explaining themselves to Marisy to a certain degree. And that's helpful because they're also explaining it to us, the audience, but, and, you know, maybe this is because you're more invested in the Cosmere stuff than I am, but, I don't think investiture was ever explained to me as a reader. Mm. And, you know, in the back half of this book, characters are just talking about it like everybody knows what the fuck that is. And I did. I kind of had to piece it together. Like, I guess that's just generic magic. Yeah, that's Um, fair enough. Yeah. 
And so, uh, you know, I think that and I think that there's a lot of this in this book, sadly, where um, I think Sanderson uh, expects all of his readers to be a little bit more read up on the wiki than uh, <laughs> we are. And I would I would consider myself, a you know, an average reader of his books. Yeah. Um, where, you know, I read the books when they come out. Maybe I'll look at a wiki here and there, but, you know, um, I, I, you know, I'm not obsessive about it. And also, also, you know, he does include a ton of like stuff in like the appendices of the books. Like you can go back and check the reference material on how all the different metals work and all that. But I got through most of this and like I get through most books, which, you know, on an audio book. So I, I it's not like I can flip to the back, you know, and yeah. see like, wait, what does chromium do again? Um, or cadmium do? Doesn't matter. Uh, so but I do think he's taking a little bit too much for granted from the audience in some of these places. I would agree for sure. And actually where I think it's actually really starting to he, he's he's like you said, hats on hats like. You know, you're learning about the Mistborn system. OK, you know, you kind of get your you kind of understand it. And then he layers on more stuff for it. And then he layers on more stuff for it. You're like already having a little bit of trouble keeping track of what's happening with this world's magic system. And mm-hmm. you start getting little smatterings of other pieces. And the same exact thing is happening in Stormlight, where it's getting like a little bit like just like kind of jerking it a little bit to like his magic creations. And it's still cool. I like it. But even, you know, I wouldn't I would probably put if 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 one is someone who literally just like reads these books, has no idea what's going on, barely understands them. And 10 is like the hyper nerd who knows everything. I'm probably like an eight, mm-hmm. I would say maybe you're like a five or a six, something like that. Right. And like I try and just like put it aside and just like be in the moment if I can. And I know enough that like mm-hmm. I don't have to look too much, but even still, it's like, OK, so like, OK, so there's this metal does this. But if you do it with this metal and it does that and like, right. OK, but if you, you know. And it's interesting because what I liked about the second era was that he kind of scaled it back. Yes. Right. Like Vin had 16 powers to kind of like juggle. You're like, oh, my God. I mean, it's not quite that many, but, you know, in the teens. And now it's like they got two, you know, like they each get two because it's like, okay, cool. And then it's all about just like how do they the combinations interact together. But then it's like when you get Duralumin in there and like, you know, things happen and it's nothing crazy because it's usually just like it makes it bigger or like it makes it worse, like kind of thing. But then you get the spikes involved when you have. Well, that's, you know, yeah. it starts to get complicated. That's so. so. So, yeah. So there's 16 metals and then also some alloys that you have to keep track of. Sure. And each metal can be uh, if you're a misting or a mist or sorry, what, what it, it's uh, misting or alamancer. Yeah. Allo- there, there's three yeah. kinds of magic. That yeah, that's the thing. There's three magic metals. systems, which is the confusing part. All which is- using all using these different sixteen different metals, and depending yeah. on which magic system you're using to use the metals, the effects are slightly different. Uh, so there's allomancy, which um, is what we're first introduced to in the early Mistborn books, where you ingest the metals and quote unquote burn them, which produces an effect. And uh, one metal will let you manipulate metal in the environment. Others give you various telepathic powers. There's the time stuff, all that stuff. Okay, that's one magic system using these metals. And then there's ferrochemy, which 
still uses the same metals, but now you're embedding the metal in your body and you're storing various things in it. So like if you you can store uh health in a particular metal but which means like you basically choose to be like sick and weak for a month so now you've got that metal that health stored so that it later on you can draw on that stored health to like heal a wound basically but 16 different metals mm-hmm. that all have a different effect and then there's hemallergy which involves some kind of, you know, uh, black magic procedure where you're not no longer born with the powers, but I take a spike of that metal and I kill somebody who has powers with that spike. And now the powers are in the spike. And then I put that spike in somebody else. And now they've got the powers. OK, great. <laughs> That's a lot to fucking keep track of. Yeah. And, and you can also compound some of them if you have the same one like the guy in the first book or you can use uh like there's you know one that makes the metal do more or less and or you can steal powers from somebody else yeah or uh and now you've got all of these little things involved but now as we go a little further and yeah so by the end of the first three books vin has like 16 different powers but you've learned about them along the way with her Mm -hmm. and also you just get to the point where you're like whatever she can do all the cool magic and so can the bad guys so fucking great let's 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 wreck shit um and then, like you say, and then, but by the time we get to the second era, because, you know, like the, the, the powers are like attached to bloodlines and as the bloodlines get diluted, the powers get diluted too. So now you're getting down to people that only have one or two powers and like anybody could have like a really cool combination of powers that might, you know, and yeah, that does kind of simplify things, but he couldn't resist <laughs> getting more and more complicated with it. Because now, by the fourth book of that, it's like, okay, you've got maybe one Allomantic power and one Ferrochemy power. But also, we figured out how to do the spiking thing without killing people. Yeah, and we also figured out how to, like, stole, like make kind of technology with some of the magic. Like right. The we made a grenade that does grenade. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so, but now it's like, okay, now if you've got these two powers, but then you get a spike with this power, uh-huh. And I think when we get to that point, Sanderson just assumes that we have in our head what all that means. Like, oh, no, like there's this big reveal in like one of the, you know, in kind of the climax where like Wax shows up with a spike in him. And like that scene is written like we as the audience are to go, oh, holy shit, it's about to go down now. He's got this. And I'm like, I don't what 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 does that mean? I don't remember. And now I have to go consult a spreadsheet about what happens when a person with power A and B gets spike seven. It you know what I mean? And I think it's that he's taking for granted how much we have in our heads about all these different power sets. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, and maybe it's just because I am just like slight. it's like slightly more just like in my brain. Yeah. I was able to like keep up with it reasonably well. Although thinking about it, you know, two months later after fact, I'm like spike <laughs> and the spike gave him the thing. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, yeah, it's only more complicated because you can already start to see ahead a little bit where you're like, OK, so now we see that they're starting to like kind of make technology using this metal and that metal and don't need. So you can already kind of imagine how faster than light travel is going to be like 
oh, they do it with magic, right? Right. You get you, you get a Wayne who can do the time thing, another guy who can do the other time thing, and you hook them up to the machine, and they fucking make the ship basically teleport, right? So you know, time dilation is not a problem, and whatever. So I mean, it's and this is stuff right. If you find like we're talking about interesting and cool, which it is, read these books. Yeah. It's not like if it sounds like a lot, then I it's think it's lot. still readable. But it's just, yeah, it's it's relying on. And I think I think where it's hard is that which is both a strength and a con weakness here is that, you know, his climaxes usually involve some amount of foreshadowing that's been happening with the magic system Mm -hmm. that comes together in a way. It's like, oh, okay, lay some breadcrumbs of like, yeah, they have spikes and they do the, you know. A special thing and then oh because of those two things now now he he's in the exact place he needs to be and knows what he needs to know to like be able to put all the pieces together to solve the problem right and that's cool because he's not just making the magic system for like he's he's making it part of the story yes but then it's a part of the story and you kind of have to understand what's going on to understand the ending of the book right yeah and and that's you know so like Thinking back to the first three books, like, you know, Vin, uh, you you are learning about the magic, uh, how the magic works alongside Vin, because she's discovering her powers and she's being also like inducted into basically like an Ocean's Eleven crew of various other magic users. Um, so there's a lot of great opportunities for exposition, but... Um, you know, it's like, but, and I might be misremembering because I read these books like a decade ago, but like, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're starting with like, you know, uh, like, I feel like the first book is really all Allomancy. And yeah, then you I mean, don't Sa- really Sa- learn Sa- about. has, has, you know, his fair comment. You learn a little bit of the things he has right. and he, cause he has all of them too, which is pretty wild, um, to think about. Right. And he's storing knowledge. He's storing speed right. he's storing strength you know these things i actually think the ferrochemical stuff's like the most interesting because it's like yeah it, it, i just find it like really like an interesting idea being able to like store luck or store time or whatever like it's kind of neat um you know and we learn about the lord ruler who has everything and therefore is functionally a god yeah right but or functionally you, but immortal you, at least you're you're learning about these things like kind of book by book and then it's not until book three where you fully understand all these pieces, but it builds on itself and you're discovering it alongside the other characters. Because also within the first book, a lot of the the way the magic works is kept secret from the people in the world. Right. So um, so you're learning it alongside everyone. And uh, so, again, the exposition is a lot more natural. Uh, but then you get to era two and all of this stuff is just like understood by everyone, which is an interesting like world building approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like um, the discovery is not as interesting and you don't yeah. get those moments of like where you learn about a new power or like, oh, and that tells now I've by now that I understand this power, I understand like the overall cosmology of the world a little bit better. It's now all the characters in the book are presumably working on the same knowledge set that the readers are, but the readers might have forgot some shit between books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we also have like the unknown things that then sneak in, right? We didn't even talk about the god medals, right? Like, um, Lorassium, Atium, and Et Metal, which are like big parts of this book. And then you yes. can make alloys with those hypothetically. And yeah, it's, it's 
complicated. Um, yes. So yeah, a little anyway, too complicated. A little too complicated. I would agree. And I get nervous for, you know, now we're going to jump another 50 years in the future. Like, what, what's that going to so look like? And how what, do you- I, I'm actually kind of, in, I mean, well, I don't know. Because part of it is, like, here's how I could imagine things going in the next book. Because what we start to see a little bit that they hint at in, in this is, like, they're starting to industrialize the magic. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, in the, in the first books, a lot of the magic was basically gate kept by class and heredity, which, Hey, you know, that I like that. Um, and in these books, you know, there's still the hereditary elements, but they, they are starting to discover how they can like make the spikes without killing anybody. Right. Or harvest investiture from other sources and, so you can imagine if the next book takes place, let's say, 100 years in the future, that maybe at this point, any, you know, like naturally, really nobody's walking around with like inherited magic abilities. Or if they are, nobody's really taking the time to develop them because all the magic is in technology that you can just buy. Yeah. Right. And and the other side of it is, I think, something smart he does, which is it's kind of like a, a side note in this, but they talk about it a lot where he he takes a science approach to it too where example this magic system is all about the metals right and mm-hmm. aluminum is a very special metal in this world and actually throughout the cosmere it seems is that basically it's just like it's inert it's just like it magic doesn't work on it it's a yes. magic shield it's a magic people, blocker people literally wear tinfoil hats <laughs> in this book and it yes. works because yeah. the aluminum like prevents you from getting your emotions or your right. uh, psyche messed with by, you know, alamancers. But I'm not a scientist. I don't really know how it works. But pre-industrial area era, aluminum is really uncommon and really expensive. Yes. Once you learn about electrolysis, you can just make it and it's really cheap. And they actually reference in this book that like some people know how to make it and they're basically making a ton of money. out. That's how, right. you know, the ghost bloods fund their operation because they can just like slowly leach out aluminum into the world but pretty soon everyone's gonna know that so now it's everyone just walking around in like aluminum lined suits and therefore like most magic just doesn't work on them so right like, you know you can kind of build in these little like weaknesses for the whole thing where it's like well you know it's not it only works in these areas because everyone's got aluminum everywhere or whatever like our buildings line with aluminum because of that or different things i don't know it's just interesting but yeah um so you have an opportunity to basically rewrite how all of it works Because once it becomes no longer this thing of like, well, you're either born with certain powers or you're not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, once they find a way to industrialize it, it's like you could just buy a different power set. Um, You know, is it going to be, again, if he's going to do like a cyberpunk thing, is it going to be like, you know, augments and cybernetics, like like in the cyberpunk stuff, you know? Right, Um, right. You got spikes inside gloves that, you know, whatever and yeah. Right. Or or maybe maybe, you know, maybe they get to the point where it's not even a spike you have to put in. It's a pill you can take. Yeah. Or, um, you know, it's it's actual cybernetic implants. But this one's made of, you know, uh, steel that's been, you know, infused with, you know, it's it's a steel mind and it's also your arm. Mm hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of things you could do and you could, you know, again, kind of suck some of the complexity out of the magic system because you could just be, you know, it's a little bit more like, you know, it's a little bit more video gamey again. You go buy the thing that does the thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, and there's definitely something, one of the themes of maybe not 
Mistborn overall, but at least this era of Mistborn is about like industrialization and technology mm-hmm. and and kind of like what's desirable because one of sort of the, you know, long story short, Harmony remade the world into like a harmonious paradise hypothetically compared to what it used to be which was which was like a a kind of just ecological dystopia right because the lord ruler had tried to make things better but just fucked it all up yeah the 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 biggest thing is that the 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 planet was like slightly out of orbit of where it should be to be in the you know particular zone or whatever but anyway um and there's this sort of idea that they had stalled out technologically because and like as a society because there was no reason to try more, hypothetically, I guess. Right. And that's something that one of our other characters who's, you know, uh, from the previous books, who is also sort of like not a god, but, you know, lingering, we'll say, you know, he is like, no, we need to like there's all these other planets out there. They're coming for us. As we see in this book, we need to industrialize faster. And like, yes, you know, the gods need to get involved and like help us get there because otherwise we're going to get taken over and, and obliterated by somebody else. Right. And this and, is this is Kelsier's. Yes. Plan. Yes. Yeah. And but it's also, you know, autonomy, you know, that city that they I forget what it's called. Bill, um, you know, the, the other city in the book is more kind of like developed and futuristic and they have different things because autonomy has been hypothetically leaking secrets to them about like technological improvement that Ellen yeah. doesn't have. And, you know, again, this sort of like individualistic mindset of like competition and like, that's what's happening in that city. And, you know, that's where the politics start to yeah. come in a little bit. You want okay. to talk about that? Yes. So um, while I have a lot of problems with this book, um, I'm very happy with the politics of this book. Um, I was, I was pretty psyched. Like, I'm pretty sure I texted you about it. I was like, I think in the first chapter, uh, Sanderson brings up the concept of social murder, which is like a concept invented by Lenin, which (laughs) is basically the idea that like if you kill somebody with, say, uh, you know, economic policy, right? Like if you pass a law that makes a bunch of people starve to death and you knew they were going to starve to death because your law, you you murdered them. But it's okay. Because it was done with a law and not with a gun. And Sanderson basically quotes that word for word. (laughs) And I was like, all right, now that could have happened by accident. But then we get to when we're introduced to autonomy and like the more they talk about autonomy and it's like, oh, so autonomy like on the surface is all about like, I want people to be individuals and pursue the maximum amount of their flourishing and all that. And I was like, that sounds like some bullshit. Um, but then <laughs> you get further in and they start to say like, yeah, but you notice how like everybody who follows her ends up doing everything the same and they all end up just be basically being little clones of each other because they're trying to make her happy and they're trying to like be the bestest, strongest individual. And I'm like, oh man. oh man it's just and and then you realize that like this whole idea of like you must compete to this to 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 innovate and decide who's the strongest and it's like all of that just ends up serving autonomy and not the actual people doing the competing i was like fuck yeah brandon sanderson you've been you've been reading that china miaville haven't you (laughs) like because it's like you know it's it's the false promise of libertarianism and objectivism that you know that by Everyone competing. It's all totally fair. There, there's 
no, you know, nobody's putting their hands on the scale. It's, you know, it's the, that's the marketplace of ideas, man. And everything's going to be fine. And it's like, is it though? Or is it going to end up going the way that whoever sets up the marketplace wants it to go? And yeah, in this um, case, that's autonomy, right? It's yes. like she wants it, but she also just wants to be in charge. You know, like she wants to win. Yes. And, and she's making everyone else compete against themselves to impress her which just turns them into her little puppets mm-hmm. like um so it's not you know it's like so essentially people who advocate for autonomy or for individualism are really advocating it for it for themselves <laughs> but they don't necessarily want everybody else to be a unique powerful shining flower you know um which is really the end of, you know, the logical end of libertarianism, American libertarianism, which is just, oh, so the person who's the most ruthless will end up being in charge of all of us, right? <laughs> like, uh, the person who starts with the most power is going to end up with the most power and the rest of us are all going to have a lot less power. That seems bad. But like that, that's the bad guy. Love it. And and that following this, you know, supposed like individualism, autonomy, God just turns you into a genocidal lunatic (laughs) a little on the nose, but I'll take it. Yeah, it kind of came. I mean, it's not out of left field because left field (laughs) Marcy since like book one has always been like. We'll call her the first progressive criminal justice student. Yes. Because she's a cop, but she's like, but like, when I look at the numbers, this doesn't line up, right? Why? Right. Like, we're getting more cops, yet crime is going up. Like, what's that? Like, she's always making these little, like, again, maybe a little on the nose, yes. like, commentary. She, but She always has a, a systemic critique of right. whatever's going on. Right. Uh, and it's it's fascinating because I just I just really I really like her character because there's that going on and she likes to be a cop and she likes to do the cop thing, you know, as well as but, you know, in like the action kind of way, she's a good shot. You know, she likes to get in there and figure it out. But she's also got these like systemic concerns, but she's also just like an innately really curious person mm-hmm. and kind of can't like not dig into it. Right. Which makes sense. Right. Because she's got these little threads and she keeps pulling and pulling and pulling makes sense in her like criminal justice research and then it makes sense that she's like when she gets a taste from the ghost bloods these world hopping you know followers of kelsier who in her mind is it's actually her god yeah she's a survivor survivorist or whatever they're called and you know she's like holy shit and then she's like i really want to do that so when the choice comes to her at the end where it's like you want to join the ghost bloods or she chooses no which is hard for her I just really like that that arc was like interesting. And then for her to be what she's an ambassador at the end of the book, right? To the yeah, South. But they and the but the reason she ends up saying no, I think, is because she doesn't want to have to keep things secret. Right. All the all of the, you know, the wonders yes. of the universe that they're about to show her, they're like, Yeah, you can join us, but like one of our big rules is like you have to like you can't tell people about what we do and you can't tell people what you know. And yeah. she's and like she's like, That's fucked up. But I wanna tell people about this. Yeah. Um, and I think what one of the interesting things is, is that, you know, a, a and I think it reveals a little bit about Sanderson's politics is like you say, like Marisi, we're introduced to her as this very curious character. And as she's discovering the systemic roots of the problems she's dealing with as a cop, like she's discovering them due to her own curiosity. We're not introduced to a character who comes into things with some kind of like progressive leftist chip on their shoulder and mm-hmm. is just seeing 
systemic issues, you know, wherever she looks. Right. Like the implication is that, oh, those issues are real and she's discovering them, uh, which I think is a nice touch. Um, and uh, I mean, also, look, he made... He, he made Ayn Rand the villain of these of, <laughs> of the book. Uh, so, like, I mean, it, it's pretty clear it's not lip service. Um, but I am glad that because one of the things that I would, you know, I, I, you know, always felt a little bit iffy with Sanderson on is that um, at least in the Mistborn books, because powers are inherited and I always get a little bit yucked out when i'm reading fantasy that has basically like oh you've got the magic blood Mm -hmm. you it's almost like you're part of a different race that Mm -hmm. maybe should be the master of (laughs) the other races like i always get a little bit worried when i see that and there's a lot of that in uh, the first couple of Mistborn books. But then you realize that like, you know, that, act- oh, no, that was actually on purpose because the Lord Ruler was shitty. Like he intentionally gave powers to like 12, uh, you know, like people who would become the nobility. He mm-hmm. gave them powers on purpose to make them loyal to him. And yeah. that's why it became hereditary. And that's why it became locked to class, because also it was generally the aristocracy who were going to be born with these powers. Right. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, but even so like, oh God, there's magic blood in these books. Um, yeah. and you're always a little worried that like, oh no, it's going to be that, isn't it? Um, but then it's like, oh no, it seems like he's definitely like either he had a less essentialist view all along or he's, and he's kind of, you know, clarifying that or he's, you know, he's seen the light in more recent years, but he also skipped in the usual progression from, uh, quote unquote centrist to, uh, you know, lefty, uh, lefty dirtbag like myself. There's usually a interminable stopover in Wokeville. (laughs) Um, and he seemed to skip that. I love it. (laughs) Like I didn't have to have anything where somebody's powers come from intersectionality or like, um, (laughs) Not that those things aren't important, but like, I'm glad that he's focusing in on like systemic issues, class politics, uh, those sorts of things. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I think generally he's a pretty, he's more thoughtful than maybe like initial glance at his books would first yes. show you. Um, and I do think though, it's, it's like evolution over time. Yeah. I think so. I, I think that, you know, that wouldn't be, uh, Brandon Sanderson 10, 20 years ago could probably not have articulated this much like you or I probably could not. Articulate oh, uh, yeah, this, yeah. Right. Um, um, I will and- also say just in terms of like agreeing with the politics, another thing that I really liked, it's a small thing and it's, it's mainly a comedy scene like most of the um, Wayne scenes are, but the scene where he's just like accidentally stupidly inventing genius things like where he's talking yes. to his bankers and he's like, he's basically just trying to get rid of them. Yeah. He's like, I don't know. Like, I guess a professional noseball league, whatever. I don't know. You know, you could sell hot dogs at the place and like maybe the best players could endorse a car. I don't know. Something stupid like that. Yeah. And, and he has to literally because Wayne's thing is he puts on a hat and he tries to, you know, impersonate that person, but really take on their whole persona. And he yes. has to. It's so the idea of being a effectively a billionaire or whatever he is in this book is so abhorrent to him that he has to like put on one of the guy's hats he's with and like impersonate 
what it would a be rich to be guy. a shitty rich guy. <laughs> but also, like, he's in his head. He's thinking that these are just stupid ideas. He he doesn't want this money. He wants them to waste it. He wants them to throw it away, basically. Um, but in the process, he's just, like, accidentally inventing these, you know, smart ideas. Yeah. Um, and for sure, in era three, like his company's going to be like the Amazon yes. or whatever. Yes. yes. And, but like, but again, like, um, you know, like the fact that like they, the Sanderson even takes some time aside from just like, all right, the villain is Ayn Rand. Um, but also to be like, also, uh, the great man inventors are idiots. They, <laughs> all, all the great things in the world that we think are, are like genius business moves were just, just random chance. Like, cause this dumb, dumb way just like pooped them out of his head. Like yep. just uh, as a joke. Um, I love it. It's great. Yep. And then you also get sort of the, I think it's a little more nuanced, but his handling of wax because mm. wax is sort of like, and they talk about it in the book, like wax should be the prime target for autonomy. He's the cowboy. He's the, you know, like yeah. rebel without, I mean, not without a cause, but he, he's a good guy, but like, you know, he was the cowboy for a long time. He was the rogue lawman. He, you know, does what he wants and kind of, you know, now he's a Senator and, you know, Sanderson did say on his podcast, he was talking about a little bit about essentialism. He's just like, Oh, it's really hard. Cause like, you know, when you're it, just the exact same things you said before, Greg, it's like, well, you read Lord of the Rings. It's like, the answer is just like a better King. And it's like, yep. that's not really, he's like, but like, it's really hard to make, you know, like representative politics, like interesting in an easy to read fantasy book. And also like because they're complicated and stupid, like, you know, it's like it's hard to like really make it come through in the way. And but I think he tries his best in this book. And I think, you know, having Wax confront like the wanton violence of like his approach to things, yeah. you know, and like he doesn't want to do it really anymore. Like he, yeah. learned, like, he did that and he's like, I don't really want to be the Sword of Harmony. And it's just like, well, sorry, dude, here's the grenade launcher. Get to it. Like, yeah. And that actually that part felt a little rushed to me mm. because, um, look, I mean, I'm I love a story about the guy who's, you know, you know, he's hung up his guns. He doesn't want to live the violent life anymore. But then they pull him back in. You know, mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, Logan. Yeah. Who doesn't? like that um and i feel like sanderson was trying to go for that a little bit here especially with the whole sword of harmony scene towards the end where you know wax just like kills an entire tower full of guys <laughs> just in like what is clearly written to be just like a really cool one-shot action sequence you know going up a spiral staircase and just with a grenade launcher that he yes. can magically control and it's like oh it's fucking cool yes <laughs> um but then it's just uh, like damn dude damn like even wayne's just like oh okay but, but it's but i feel like the the whole like oh he's reluctant to be the sword i'm like i've seen you kill 60 people before we got to this <laughs> like in this book you killed yeah. 60 people and didn't even like blink an eye yeah blink an eye and now all of a sudden you're like i don't know if i can kill 61 people <laughs> oh boy um i like i understand what he was going for but i feel like he didn't lay enough groundwork for it and that's probably fair i think that Maybe the long arc of like, you know, because I'm, you know, when he like after I guess it was Shadows of Self, which is the second book in the series, you know, he had that low period. And after he basically had to kill his romantic partner a second time. Yeah, um, that was rough. Uh, but I feel like there's like something there. Maybe he yeah, just didn't quite pull the threads together and yeah. in, in, in that piece. But I did like when, you know, when they're like he's about to go murder a bunch more people. Wayne's like, 
hold on a second. Like, maybe we could just tell them to leave. And then like, yeah, let's not yeah. just like murder everybody, maybe. Right. And it's but it, but again, like, it's just like, wait, but why wouldn't that have been Wax's idea if he's like all of a sudden reluctant to kill? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's another thing here where it just feels doesn't feel quietly fully thought through. Um, uh, two examples, actually. Uh, the first one is and basically that scene leads up to they get to the top of the tower and they think they're about to. That's where the rocket is. And then, oh, no, it's not. It was a decoy all along. The real bombs on a boat in the harbor. OK, that's fine. I've seen this twist many times. Um but didn't they get to the tower with basically a random guess? Like, wasn't it like Wax and Wayne were like having a beer and Wayne like saw Wax's little like ball toy up in the air and was like, oh, if you're launching a rocket, you got to do it from a high building. Oh, they must be at the top of the tower. And that's how they decided to go to the tower. Why would there be a decoy there? Also, Telson, the big boss, is there with the decoy. Like, I, th- I think the how, idea well, is that, from my memory at least, is that their initial intention was not to be a decoy. <laughs> the initial intention was to make the rocket and do it. So they'd set it all up there and did the whole thing. But then when they realized they couldn't get it done in time before autonomy's timetable, they switched to the, you know, decoy idea and knew that, you know, try to lay some breadcrumbs for wax and yeah. to get there. There was also the idea like the tower was owned by the mayor or something or like right. there was some other like political connection that made sense that it'd be like that tower too. But so it wasn't, but, but like it wasn't, to me at least, there didn't seem like the bad guys were really leaving that breadcrumb trail to misdirect the heroes. It kind of seemed like um, so that part was like a little bit weird, like as I was kind of going back and looking at the plot summary to kind of refresh myself, I was like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. (laughs) Uh, So that's one where I was like, I know what you were going for, but you didn't you didn't lay the groundwork for this. Um, Another one is so the two big uh, henchmen in this are uh, these two characters who are basically like clones of Wax and Wayne. you know, one has all of Wax's powers. The other has all of Wayne's powers, you know, and I've been studying you. I know all your moves. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. You know, that's, again, classic trope, but whatever. You get cool scenes out of it, you know. Um, and then, you know, the our heroes, they how they how they decide to how they figure out how to beat these guys, because they always kept having these stalemates was, uh, oh, I'll fight your guy and you fight my guy. And then they went and I'm like, OK, but. Isn't that kind of obvious? <laughs> like, if you're like, I know how we're going to beat our two superhero, you know, gumshoe, these meddling kids. We'll make guys with the exact power sets as them. And but then, better. Right. But of course, you know, like, like, but like plus two points extra. Uh, <laughs> and then the wax clone will always fight the wax, the real wax. And the Wayne clone will always fight the Wayne. And, and th- that'll be great. They'll kill each other. It's like, well, but what if they don't fight? What if? <laughs> What if they just end up fighting each other differently? Wouldn't that kind of unbalance things? Like, this doesn't seem like a great master plan. And also, if you can make the clones just by putting the spikes in guys, right? Why not make 10 of these motherfuckers? Or why not sit down and say, okay, so we know what Wax's exact power set is. There's got to be basically, and again, to use a gamer term, there's a hard counter for that, right? Like, there's got to be another power set that basically is just going to nullify him and it's gonna be a pain in the ass to fight. Why not make that guy? 
right. instead of like, oh, we'll just make one who's like him, but better. Um, and the answer is because you get cooler scenes that way. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I think there's a little bit of that going on because I think that one hypothetically, and they talk about this a little bit, if I remember correctly, like when they do the swap, I had the same idea, like, well, that seems silly. Like, why wouldn't they think of that? And they mentioned something around lines of like, in an ideal scenario, it wouldn't matter. But because they kind of did it, they helped each other get into the right position to make it work. Because like, if you're Wayne fighting the wax clone, that guy should just be able to just like basically fly away from you the entire time and never get have a problem. Right. And also they were kind of made to counter them because like, at least the if I remember correctly, the wax clone you know he needed to have the same power set as wax to get near him and then he also had the ability to drain his like the uh you know right the, uh, right drain his power set which is what is his strength so like maybe there's that piece there it's like or maybe you know i also think there's like a little bit of just like that and i just can't tell if this is like good or bad it just feels like everyone's all the bad guys are just like a little bit incompetent in this book yeah and is that because because they talk about how like you know you think this like competition and individualism is going to make you the best, but really it doesn't. And like, is that is he trying to get that through and just not maybe communicating it? I don't know. But like I say, it's just like it doesn't quite. It, it, yeah, it, it just seems like um, because like, you know, the, the one of the first the, the uh, what was it? Miles. Yeah, Miles. Uh, who was villain, I think, in the second book? First book. First book. Like, he was a really good foil for, like, again, it's that idea of, like, the hard counter to the power set. Because Miles uh, just had this, like, incredible regeneration ability. So no matter what kind of really cool violence Wax could dish out, it just didn't matter. Because mm-hmm. Miles could just keep healing. And um, that was cool, because it was like, oh, oh, I see how their pa- like how their powers kind of stalemate with each other. Um and I feel like there are so many cool opportunities for that in a world like this with these different power sets that just to make it the mirror match, you know, that like in every video game you play, it's like, oh, I'm going to play a, a, you know, a you know, this this boss is just you, but five levels higher. Your yeah. your same gear, your same loadout, your same, you know, skill tree, just, you know, with a bigger health bar. Have fun. Yeah. Like it just felt a little lazy. Yeah. Maybe not lazy, but yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, you know, leaning too hard into the trope without trying to make right. it more more compelling or interesting. Um, but that leads me to something else. And just an, another kind of what feels like an underdeveloped idea. Um, it seems like there is an underlying theme here about like identity and like kind of dual identities mm-hmm. that it seems like it's all over the place, but never really adds up to anything. <laughs> So, like, for example, you've got, like, this whole confusing thing of, like, Trell and Autonomy, who are kind of the same thing, but kind of not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got Telson, but then there's all these asides where Wax is communicating with her, and he's like, she's a different personality now. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the clones again, which is that kind of duality, like it's the evil Wax and the evil Wayne. Wayne puts on a new hat, gets a new identity. Uh, you've And then you've got the whole scene with Marsh and, you know, where he kind of flips back and forth between the Marsh persona and the death persona. Uh, and then you've got the Moonlight character who becomes another person, weirdly. <laughs> and then you've got the twin soul character. And then you've got the, it, yeah, it's just like, there's a lot of that in there. But it never really it just seems like I feel like that's building to some kind of thematic resolution, but it's not. It's weird. Yeah, I wonder 
a good point. I wonder, as I was thinking while you talk about it, perhaps that is a broader theme of of like the whole Mistborn series, because the first trilogy is also kind of like that. Vin, Vin is playing. She's impersonating an aristocrat. You know, she's on one one shoulder. She's got Kelsier, who's a fucking psychopath, um, more or less. And, you know, is is very hateful. And then on the other hand, she's learning, well, a couple of these aristocrats aren't so bad. She meets Ellen and, you know, falls in love with him. And like, so she's trying to balance that. Is she the warrior? Is she the hero? Sazed is trying to figure out what his religious identity is. And then also, is he a fighter? Is he not a fighter? You know, and Ellen, too, is he a leader? You know, like all these different things. So there might be something broader that you probably should bring to a con- like some sort of like small yeah. arc conclusion in each arc. But there might be something more broad there that's happening. I don't know. Right. Or or it might just be a quirk of his writing style, because I well, really like the the you know, the the. There were some elements in the the one Mistborn book where Vin was really like, uh, yeah, where she was masquerading as this noble. And like th- there were these where, where she like a couple of points where she likes had would like have a genuine identity crisis about it. Like where yeah. she wasn't sure who the real person was anymore. I yeah. really liked those scenes. Um, and then there was there was a bad guy character who had a voice in his head. Right. Uh, um, yes. In uh, both, spook. Yeah. Uh no, no, no. There uh, there was a villain. Like oh, one Zane. of the big bads um, in book two or three. Yeah, Ruin's talking to a lot of people right, in right. those books. And he, anyone and has a have, spike he can talk to, basically. Right. And then we learn that the voice in his head was Ruin. Yeah. Like we we get we that that becomes a thing. But for most of the book, we we just think he's a guy with two personalities. Yeah. Um, and then there is obviously Harmony, which is like, you know, two gods merged into one. Yep. And um, now Discord? They talk about how, you know, there's there's this is the one thing that's kind of like the open, like what is going on here question more broadly for the series is like, you know, so Harmony's holding Saza's holding both these shards that are kind of in in competition with each other. And it kind of makes him, um, you know, like indecisive, and indecisive, harmonious, you know, like, yeah. So um, centric <laughs> um, and uh yeah um i think that there's like there's scenes where like you can see a dark shadow of him and people start they, a couple times people mention discord with like a capital d in that like who is this like and there's and harmony just straight up lies to kelsey at the end and it's also been said from the beginning that like ruin the ruin part of his harmoniousness is slightly um like stronger than the preservation mentality so i guess the the kind of idea there is eventually the ruin is gonna take over or or start to balance that out or start to unbalance that relationship that was up to this point you know good and what does that mean for someone like saza because one of the points of these shards is that their intent slowly warps your personality over time to to match that intent in um stormlight there's the big bad guy is odium means like hate basically and they talk about in some of like the little pre-chapter little letters they talk about what the the real person who became that god was like a decent guy when he took it but over time it warps your mentality and drives you to sort of act out that intent right so that's sort of like a lingering thing from the the series of like what i'm sure will come play in the next series um because it's it's always very interesting to get a little like Cosmere about it because Harmony's the only person with two shards in the whole universe, which technically makes him the most powerful. And everyone's 
terrified of him because of that, which is why he's being targeted by autonomy and why Skadger is being targeted by autonomy because like we need to get we need to take care of this guy before he's an issue because he could kill all of us because he's got two shards as yeah. opposed to one. Well, and, and I think that's that's clearly where things are going, because, you know, one of the the things here is Harmony is blind now, mm-hmm. whatever that means. It was blind in this book. And, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and is very reluctant to much more reluctant to act than maybe in previous books. So something's clearly changing for Harmony. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just thinking about like, hey, if you're writing books, are you making your godlike character like more powerful and good? Are you going to make them, you know, more benevolent as as the series goes on? Does that sound like a good way to raise the stakes? Right. So, yeah, I think I I, I think it's good. You're going to see this shift where, you know, either he splits into two or um, there's there's going to be something where we get an evil version of Harmony. Yeah, it does seem that way. And I feel like, you know, I like it's been hinted at for a little while, both in Mistborn, but then also in Stormlight. It's kind of this is actually where it's first technically revealed that like Kelsier died in the first book, but is still around reasons um he's in charge of the ghost bloods because he clawed his way back out of hell basically yeah more or less out of limbo but yeah um he said he basically stared the afterlife in the face and gave it the finger like out of sheer will just said nah i'm not fucking and he runs the ghost bloods right which are this like you know and cosmere organization you know in stormlight shalin is she joins the ghost bloods and she's like about them they're a lot more evilish in stormlight for sure um which is a little bit you know we know kelsier is not afraid to kind of take the brutal approach to things if it you know he's that you know that that where that good lawful good starts to wrap around back around towards you know like eh, the greater good but at what cost kind of ends justify the means i guess the best way to describe his mentality and to see that play out on like a political scale because before it was very individual right in the first book it's him just like i'm gonna go murder some nobles because fuck Right. Like, okay, cool. I'm going to steal their shit. <laughs> uh, where now it's like, well, I, I'm, he's trying to protect the planet. I guess that's his goal. Um, it's a little unclear how, he, how he's recruited so many people from different, like, places. I assume we'll get another, like, secret history at some point, which will be fun, which is a little novella that kind of runs parallel to the first series that about Kelsier. Yeah. So so the, the Shadesmar realm is mm-hmm. basically the upside down from Stranger Things, right? Yeah, it's... Also called so there's kind of like three realms. There's the physical realm, the world, the cognitive realm, which is yeah, Shades Mar, the upside down, and then there's the spiritual realm, which is basically where people go when they die. And right. It seems like that's like a one way. You don't, you know, there's no connection. Um. So Shades Mar, like, but Shades, like, but uh, yeah, because it's kind of like the upside down, where it's like this weird kind of inversion of our reality, but like there are physical features that are largely the same. Right. Yeah. So, the, so you it's could, inverted water and land are inverted. So like oceans are land and land are oceans. Right. And, and those oceans appear differently depending on what world it is. But the important part about Shadesmar is that it's all con- it's since it's all in people's heads, right. more or less, they're all connected. You can, you can walk from one planet to another right. in Shadesmar. There, there's a right. There's a way for me to get from. The Earth version of Shadesmar to the Mars version of Shadesmar. Right. Um, And in Secret History, it seems like Kelsier basically figures out how to move through Shadesmar at will. 
So yeah. presumably that's how he's world hopping. Yeah. The technical term, if you want to get this is where the RPG comes out. He's called a cognitive shadow. Like his physical body has died, but his, you know, not soul, but I guess that ghost. cognitive. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. And he he only can exist in Shadesmar in that book. And at some point along the way, he gets a body and uses a spike, which is why he's a spike in his eye somehow to right. get basically. Imagine you t- you took you're playing pin the tail on the donkey, but the donkey is a body and the tail is Kelsier's essence and just fucking snack it on somebody else. So hopefully someone willing. Right. But isn't, um, but, but, but isn't, but doesn't, uh, and, and it, it's not important to get into the weeds here on like the exact mechanics. Cause I'm not sure Sanderson has figured it out. And again, I don't super care. <laughs> um, but like, uh, but doesn't like when Marisi sees him, she recognizes him. So it's like, it's still his physical features. Yeah. So, this is there's a thing about identity. So there's like oh. all these like capital capitalized terms, right? Intent, connection. This is the more like this is where you're going to like the shit where it's like a little more loosey goosey magic. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, obviously when you're like, I'm storing health, I'm just stronger. Or I'm going to store strength. Now I'm stronger, blah, blah, blah. But you can store connection. And like, what does that mean? So you can like, you know, or you could store identity. Or, you know, and these things can can and there's different magic systems that interact with them in different ways, which you don't even really know all of them, the more like kind of loosey goosey stuff. So so basically when he when he uh, possesses a body, it starts to look like him. Yeah, because his right. identity is like what he envisions and then it starts which to is, turn that. Which is totally fine. A side note, I'm currently reading, I'm almost finished, uh, another Dan Simmons, uh, one of his horror books, Carry and Comfort. It's very good and I won't spoil, but uh, there's some possession is a big theme in that. And I mean a theme, like that's big mechanic in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the way we, when one person possesses another, the the possessed person doesn't really physically change, but... You can notice that, like, the way they carry themselves is different or like their resting expression has changed. Something about something in the Mm. eyes is a little different. Mm -hmm. And that's how they sometimes recognize that somebody else is being controlled because all of a sudden, like, you know, they're these subtle changes. Uh, But I just thought I would mention that as a uh, as it because it made me think of it. And that book is very good. Yeah. Um, there's other examples, right? Where like example in Stormlight, basically anyone who becomes a magic user, uh, which isn't bloodline related, um, in that series, at least. Right. How do they get powers in that? They have to bond with a spren, their little familiar thing. Okay. Um, and you basically get supernatural healing, like as a base power. (laughs) (laughs) It's fucking stupid. Including in the package. Yeah. But there's a character, Lopin, who doesn't have he's missing one of his arms. And when he gets a supernatural healing, his arm doesn't grow back because that's part of his like he's always he's been yep. that way for such a long time that it's like sunken in as part of his yep. identity. It only knows how to heal you from yeah. when you started. Yep. That, and there's another standard yep. standard rules. <laughs> yep. And there's another character that that she's paralyzed from the waist down and similar things. She can't she can't heal herself because that's like how she thinks about herself. Um, but yeah. So anyway, uh, I. I wanted, what did you think about to go back to like the, another commentary on, you know, heredit, heredit, uh, hereditary magic, you know, when, you know, and of course, one of my favorite kind of scenes when in one of the epilogue chapters, when Kelsier and Harmony are like 
sitting on the building talking about, you know, the future. Mm -hmm. Really like that scene. And, you know, they're trying because basically there's a metal that comes from preservation that can make people into full Mistborns, right? They get the full suite of powers. And Kelsey is like, we need to make these to be able to fight back against the people that are trying to invade us. Yes. And Lorassium, right? He's like, you know, it's stupid that you're basically directly calling out this like, (laughs) you can do this. Just do it. Give it to everybody. Make us all Mistborns. Like, why don't you do it? And he's like, no, you know, lies, right? And I thought that was interesting because it's it's like double layers. It's like that. It's kind of a commentary on the essentialism of like hereditary magic. But also in story, it's like, yeah, Kelsier, you just want to be a Mistborn again because he's not. You know, I mean, like like, as far as we can tell, he doesn't have any powers. Huh. So it's like, yeah, that would make sense if he has a new body. (laughs) Mm hmm. So it's like, yeah, man, you just want to be a Mistborn again, too. Not that both can't be true, but it's just like just the layering of like character and theme. And, you know, I I like that bit. Uh, And also just fun to see two characters that are just like so far removed from their early context of being like friends. And they're still kind clearly they're still friends, but have a really different view of how to save the world, right? Or how to run the world. And that's (laughs) one who is right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised Uh, that Kelsier is the right one, but uh well he might be right for the wrong reasons sure sure but it's like if you have the power to give this to everyone why don't you and harmony doesn't have a good answer because right now the world doesn't have a good answer to that um well no i mean the world's answer to why don't we just give everyone what they need is because that because those of us who have the power to do that, we like things the way they are now. We like having everything. Right. And because we have everything, we're the ones who decide whether or not. And what's weird is it's actually the rest of us who have the power to decide because uh, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. <laughs> yeah. So interesting stuff. Um, I'm, I'm surprised, uh, you know, to sort of sum up that bit it's like i'm just surprised how kind of political this book is like really and but what i like about it is that you know yes greg everything is political but there are people who are you know writing a book for for the point of making a political statement right yes and then there are people who are writing a book you know and their their politics and things are going to come through in that book but they really just want to write a fun fantasy story or whatever yes and Sanderson is very holy in that latter category, yes. like most time. But it's interesting to see it, how much of it also comes through here. And I really can't help but think it's just like a developing thing, just like he, you know, as we all go on a journey of like politics and the world and world outlook viewpoint, like it's going to come through. And it's I just find it fascinating. And I'm curious, the fact that it is so pointedly political as we get down the road in the Cosmere, because, you know, this little fight between Kelsier and Harmony, that's sort of a shadow of things to come, right? When, when you know, when things really go full Avengers down the road and you've got worlds fighting each other or fighting amongst each other and you've got Kelsier and Kaladin and like, you know, people's worldviews and what they think are going to come into conflict. You know, it's the civil war of the MCU, right? Like what, what wins in the end? Like who does he have come out on top? Like who does he show to be right or wrong? Like those are going to be really interesting kind of things on top of just being, you know, fucking cool fantasy stuff. Well, and it's, it's tough because until you've established some system of like interplanetary trade, um, interplanetary politics don't really matter. Right. right. Like, uh, Kelsey or, I mean, shouldn't, you know, care. I mean, beyond just like, 
you know, maybe some sense of morality uh, about how Roshar, which is the uh, the planet from Stormlight, like how that's run. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. But then again, that could be interesting if it's like uh, if Kelsier is like, hey, you guys shouldn't have a fucking monarchy. That's fucking bullshit. And Kaladin's like, actually, we're kind of like it. It's fine. You know, (laughs) Um, like that could be interesting, like where they actually fight about those sorts of things. And then, you know, you run into questions of like, well, is it right to give democracy to a place that doesn't seem to want it (laughs) right uh Mm -hmm. these are thorny questions and like that could be interesting but um and and the tribalism right like you know you have like kelsier's thing is at least that i can see he he said he's gonna protect he said direct quote i'm gonna protect scadriel at all costs and that's his mentality right that's his mentality from the first book is that i'm gonna protect the ska which are the 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 lower lower class class, yeah working class at all costs and I'm going to treat the opposing side, the nobles, as I'm going to murder them. <laughs> yes. So it's like when you translate that to a, you know, intergalactic scale, on one hand, we're like, oh, yeah, Kelsier is kind of fighting the good fight to, to distribute and democratize his access to magic and stuff. But he's doing it because he probably wants to murder the other places. Well, right. His motivation is more uh, revenge based. Yeah. Um, And then. There's, you know, again, it's it's, you know, there, there's this kind of lingering question of is a revolution legitimate uh, if the majority of the populace is not on board for it, even right. if that even if that revolution makes that populace more powerful um, and distributes power more equitably, if it is not what they asked for, is it still legitimate and just? And that's a that's an open question. Um, I personally feel the answer is no, um, which is why I am not a revolutionary anarcho-communist. Um, <laughs> but every, you know, but 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 that's a that's just like a, a open philosophical question. Sure. Um, and, you know, does right. Does Kelsier just become some interstellar t- tyrant just because he hates nobility um, <laughs> that that's Interesting. Um, I think that where it's going to go is how does uh, how does Sanderson solve the problem of his universe? How does he save his world? Right. And it seems like generally the conflict with macro and micro comes from, okay. there's these huge sources of power in these shards, which are essentially the almighty broken down into 16 aspects. Um, And so uh, but and that, you know, that is like the first step to decentralizing all that power. And it seems like, you know, in every uh, in, in, you know, at least in Stormlight and in uh, um, Mistborn, at least the starting is you've got these characters like Kaladin, who is like a slave, right? Starts as a slave. Um, and Vin, who starts as like a street urchin, they get these powers that they're kind of not supposed to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kelsier, too. Also, you know, he was not supposed to have those powers. It was very unusual for someone in his social position to have those powers. Um, and that creates this, this this disruption of the status quo and... Uh, and then the power structures, I don't know Stormlight cause again, I kind of bounced off, but like there's a breakdown of the, of the power structures and it, you know, there's this 
tension about spreading out the power more broadly. And it seems like that's where we're going, right? Is And also, I think that we're introducing the tension of Harmony having two shards uh, and that creating this imbalance, right? Now, all the other shards are like, that's fucked up. You can't have two. <laughs> um, also, is- he wasn't one of the... So, you know, the kind of backstory is that when they shattered the Almighty, these 16 people did it together. And then each got a shard, right? Right. And now you got some other guy. He wasn't there. He didn't know the rules. Like, right. Another upstart. Yeah. And so I have a feeling that that where we have to go is the shards have to be broken down even more and distributed to everyone. I think that's where this goes. It yeah, seems that's like that's point. The, the larger scale of things is that it's it's like, well, do we reunite the shards and make God again and concentrate all of the magic in the universe in one place? Or do we continue breaking it down and decentralizing it? And I think that's where it's going to go. Broad strokes. Just like my prediction for uh, how Song of Ice and Fire has to go is they have to get they have to get rid of the throne. The throne is the problem. Right. Because the game of the thrones is what's making everyone miserable. That's clearly what he's building to. It's making Daenerys crazy. It's making all of the the small folk kill each other. It's awful. We need to get rid of it and decentralize power. And I think that's where Song of Ice and Fire is going to end. Clearly not where Game of Thrones ended, but uh, <laughs> you'd hope. Yeah, well, it just seems like that's what we're building to. Right. It would be really weird if Song of Ice and Fire ended up with like, yeah, it's Daenerys. She's the queen. Everybody's happy. It's fine. Right. Like, yeah. doesn't that, really seem like the point that Martin that is doesn't making. seem like what we're building to. <laughs> yeah. And also, I just get the sense from Cosmere that like the answer is not, well, just get all these shards back together and have God again. And nobody has any powers and it's fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, he is a Mormon, so who knows? But, you know, <laughs> he is. Um, yeah. It's very interesting to the, the, the internal like when you're viewing from the outside and you're like, huh. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, there- I, I enjoy thinking about this is where a lot of the fun and like the Cosmere stuff gets. It's like there's all these there's all these organizations, right? There's uh, there's a group called, you know, the 17th Shard. Like they're trying to do something. The Ghostbloods are trying to do something. There's all these sort of like shadowy organizations. And then also the gods themselves, like, you know, with different motivations. Right. We actually know. I guess we, we we're almost having the names of all the shards just from like some name drops and stuff. Just little mm-hmm. things. I'm really excited for the god that's name is Whimsy. <laughs> that'll be a fun one. Um, and also Valor. That'll be. Uh, but some of them are also already like destroyed. Like they've they've destroyed the shard and splintered them and what you know, they call them different things. But that's kind of interesting as well. Um, yeah, I that does make sense. I think that it's fun. I know one of the organization's goals is to like reunite the shards, right? Like, well, this isn't working, you know get back to the one almighty or whatever. So I'll be curious to see where some of our heroes, when they learn about these larger conflicts, like what sides they take up, where they end up and who they're fighting for. So I do think, Greg, I'll say this though for you as another tangent is that while you bounced off Stormlight, I actually think you would really enjoy some of the side books that he's done, just like one, one offs because a, there's just one of them. You know, like they're just not a whole series and they're just like weirder, like just way weirder. Like Elantris is a weird fucking book. And so is Warbreaker. And like both those are neat. And, you know, they're earlier on his career, so they're not quite as polished, but uh, they're just like way more like strange. And I'll also give a specific call out to in this book, the character Moonlight, which I had like suspicions, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. She is the main character in a short story called The Emperor's Soul, for which uh, Sanderson won, I think, his only Hugo 
before. And that's that's some fucking weird ass magic, dude. <laughs> Making yourself into a whole new person. Yeah, that's fucking. Weird. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> was having trouble find following that. But yeah, it, it's it's a thing. Um, it's all about like it's it's a, that's that identity thing, right? You're like stamping and I don't know, but that's from Elantris. It's the same world as Elantris, but you could read that it's a whole separate kind of. You could read that as a short story by itself and be completely mm-hmm. content. So, but yeah, um, I don't think I had anything else. I I liked one other just minor note, another just like little not political thing, but just like some commentary, just like when they kind of call out Wayne for like continuing to like re-traumatize this person he keeps delivering money to who, you know, he murdered. The plot line is that Wayne at his lowest at some point murdered somebody for stole from them and killed them. And what didn't really mean to, but did it. And he's been giving money to the daughter of that person for like years at this point, decades. Mm -hmm. And he always goes up and gives it to her in person. So she has to look into the eyes of her father's murder every single time. They're like, maybe stop. (laughs) And he's like, Oh, okay. I didn't think about it that way. So again, just layering in like me, Sanderson always talks about how much about identities and not tokenizing and, you know, continuing to better understand mental health, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to make heroes that have things, but is not, that's not what the book's about. It's the same kind of thing, the politics, right? Like Kaladin has depression. Stormlight archives is not a commentary on depression. It's just that his hero has to be this hero has depression. Sometimes it's real fucking sad and can't do anything. You know, Steris in this book, who we didn't even talk about, who is you know kind of a side character. Yeah. But I like her. Like, she's supposed to be written as someone who's on the spectrum. I read it as anxiety. Yeah, that's a piece of that. But yes. Um, and I thought that anxiety was written really well. Right. Um, now, and, and, and as, you know, as someone who, you know, got a mental health diagnosis late in life, there is that realization of, oh, this thing that I've been doing. Um Turns out not everybody does that, but maybe that's maybe I can actually use that. And and like mm-hmm. with, for her, it was like she was, you know, she would get so anxious about things that she would sit down and write out all these contingency plans just to like make herself feel comfortable with whatever whatever was going along wrong. And then in the book, that means she already has evacuation plans for the city drawn up um, because she had just done it basically as a as self-soothing exercise. And, I, you know, just that that subtle little read of um, when she realizes that, like, oh, not not everybody does this. Huh? Like I was like that. Yes, I know that feeling. And that's the kind of thing that the kind of um, little insight that you only get if you either have been through that adult diagnosis or you've done some careful reading of stories of people who have. And I was very pleased to see something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you have any other notes that you wanted to to hit off? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I know I had complaints um, largely with things like, uh, you know, like, OK, so like the uh, what, what, what do they call it? The collective or whatever. But like the weird underground village where they oh, convinced everyone that the world the had fallout ended. the fallout city that's what i, I kept thinking of fallout when i yeah i i kept thinking of the m night Shyamalan uh the oh, village, the village. <laughs> yeah that's basically good. with that but like like that was neat and i but i was also like oh man i wish we had spent more time on this this is such a cool idea yeah that felt rushed to me that yeah. and like and like the conclusion of like they found the the pool which is Effectively, those are like where a shard's power coalesces. They just did it a different way. But enough, you get enough investiture in one spot and it opens up a doorway to the cognitive realm to Shadesmar. And that's how right. she was traveling through there with her army. And they 
use up all the stuff, which is kind of a callback to the end of the first trilogy, I thought, which I thought was like a cool mirroring, but I didn't fully understand how it worked. Yeah, why it, it worked that way, way. Too quick. and it happened a little too quick. And I was just like, and it also felt like that point. So again, that like too many hats, like it felt such a side plot to like, they're going to nuke the city, dude. <laughs> like, we're right. going to go back to that. And, and like, and there's monsters down there, too. And yeah. like, it felt like there was so much that could have been in this idea. And I wish like this could have been a whole book. Yeah. Um, and also, like, it seemed like, you know, these people have been down there for like seven or eight years, convinced that the world has ended. And Marisi shows up and in like a 20 minute conversation, she's like, oh, no, no, no. I want you to, like, uh, destroy everything you've known <laughs> and held dear uh, for the last seven years. Uh, just trust me. And they're like, OK, fine. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the monsters were were different. That was like a kind of a throwaway thing, too. I was like, wait, 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 there's monsters in Mistborn now? Like, yeah, I was like, uh, like underground monsters patrolling the halls of like yeah. a weird underground city. I'm like, where the where's this book been? And then they try and then it's all and then it's over before before you have a chance to really kind of sit in it. I wish we'd spend a little bit more time there. Um, and I, I and there are a couple things where I felt like um I'm glad we didn't spend too much time in the Senate. Um, yeah. Just enough to be like, oh, he's trying, but it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, but there was some, you know, I, I, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think if if he had simplified the autonomy plot a little more and not gotten into all this nonsense of like Trell and autonomy and avatars and shards. And, you know, it's like just have one bad guy. Yeah. Um, it, you don't need, all, you know, that this is unnecessary complexity. Make a little bit more room for that. But like we say, I mean, I think page to page, chapter to chapter, this book is a lot of fun. When you zoom out, it gets a little fuzzy. I think that, I mean, Wayne dies in this book, and we haven't talked about that at all, uh, which I think is saying something, um, because he does the big heroic sacrifice. I think we spent a little bit too much time in that moment on the actual mechanics of, like, bomb barrels and speed (laughs) bubbles, and I was like, I don't, this is... It's very video gamey. This is yeah, or or like it's that scene in Die Hard Three where they're trying to figure out there's like a water puzzle. Yeah, like, ah, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is too much. This is too much. Um, but also it's like I don't really felt like we built up to his heroic sacrifice enough. And also mm. since like in the last book didn't Wax do a heroic sacrifice and get shot and then died and then came back, kind of feels like we're doing that again. Yeah. Uh, it, it it just didn't feel fully earned. Um, I don't know if it's I mean, we spent a lot of time with Wayne in this book, but I just feel like I don't know. I just don't really feel like we got there. It felt kind of, you know, like, oh, yeah, of course, he's going to blow up with the boat. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm a little softer on it. I think that because of getting a little more of Wayne's backstory, I felt like there's a little more and, and spending so much time with him in this book did feel like we had a, enough enough build up for me, at least to be like, OK, this makes sense of why he would this now and i think that you know wax i liked that it was a little bit of a even though it's not like this crazy turnaround on some existing trope but like wax is the hero character right he is like the guy to make the heroic sacrifice like that's his personality and for the sidekick to be like sorry dude not you like that i think is good i like that that bit because this sort of like self sometimes I feel like the self-important characters get a little bit too much of the spotlight. And I liked giving it to yeah. the fun side character. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I think that it, it like I don't think I, I, I I'm not challenging the idea of having Wayne get the big heroic moment, but I just felt a little it didn't 
really feel earned enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 yeah, I can agree with that for sure. Um, like I would have need to have seen more in the book of or in the, you know, like that Wayne is not the guy who's going to sacrifice himself. Right. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. didn't come as a surprise to me that Wayne was going to get blown up with the boat. I was like, yeah, he's he's a good guy. You know what I mean? Like and 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 he has and especially in this book, it's like, oh, yeah, it seems like this guy's got like a lot of feelings of like guilt and duty. You know, so like, of course, this is what he's going to do. So it doesn't come as a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it doesn't carry a lot of weight because it doesn't really feel like the fulfillment of an arc. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just feels like, it, yeah, he's, you know, and and also like, well, yes, I mean, it's a bomb. So if somebody's going to get blown up. Is it going to be Wax or is it going to be Wayne? Uh, it's like, I know it's going to be one of them. <laughs> I, sure. I, yeah, I, I'm just saying I just feel like it didn't quite land. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not just I I partially agree with you i think that there's so there's only so many arcs that can lead up to a sacrifice moment and i feel like if they would have went with like the i don't know i'm gonna pull some out of my hat like spike and buffy or uh like you know it's it's the guy who's not who you know i'm not the sacrifice play kid and then they do it right it's the han solo moment in in star wars right it's like that is also a little trite. Sure. So i'm glad i didn't go that right as route as well and somebody's just like no i'm just gonna do this and like maybe not having like a direct arc to the sacrifice maybe worked for me in like a hmm. kind of off obtuse kind of way, indirect way. I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely like it, it landed enough for me. Um, I liked, you know, I find, I really like Wayne. I really, some people find his humor like stupid. I like it for the most part. Some of it's a little bit like, you know, kiddos first sex joke, Brandon Sanderson, yeah. but you know, overall for him, I thought he pushed the boundaries on some of his like, like when he calls the one guy a, a bag of dicks, I was like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> like what <laughs> this is Brandon Sanderson now? And talks about he actually talked about break having sex. I know <laughs> he it, this he acknowledged the physical aspect of heterosexual love. He acknowledged <laughs> in this book, he acknowledged that it exists, which is a big thing for him. Mm. And that was I mean, I, I'm not saying like his books need to be smuttier. But like one of my big complaints with the uh, the first trilogy was, you know, the the romance plot between Vin and uh, Ellen is a big part of it. But and you get you get from both of their perspectives. But like you never it, the book is just basically telling you they're in love now. Like when you're even reading POV chapters from them, like they're not even like noticing each other's bodies in a way that, you know what I mean? Suggests they're physically attracted to each other at all. Um, And like I'm saying, like, I'm not saying you need to be, uh, you know, super blue with this stuff, but it felt far too chaste for the subject matter. And at least here, it's like he's writing stories about grownups who have had sex and yeah. might want to do so again in the future. <laughs> like, he's yeah. at least and there's a couple fade to black things. moments, right? Like where it's like, OK, like, you know, like you said, it doesn't need to be smuttier, but you need no. to have that people are doing it. Right. Or or just acknowledge like, you know, you might actually need to write your characters having some lustful thoughts. <laughs> like, again, doesn't have to be doesn't have to be terribly uh explicit but in order for the reader to like fully understand like you know like part of writing two characters being in love like 
they need to be horny about each other a little bit from time mm-hmm. to time. Um, and it seems like Sanderson still is a little fearful to write those things. And, and I get it. Like, he is actually genuinely... Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, the, the men writing women trope, like he does a very good job of not having excessive male gaze in his writing. Um, you know, cause like most of the time when you're reading a book written by a woman and, or a written, a book written by a man, whenever they describe a woman physically, it's like just ponderous detail about the shape of their body and mm-hmm. where various curves are. And then when their they describe a bosom. Right. But then when they like physically describe a man, it's like he was tall (laughs) and I get that. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, but you have to be cautious of like whose POV you're writing from. And like, yes, if you're writing the POV of a horny dude, yeah, they should be talking all the time about the shape of the body and all that stuff. Um, but if you're writing the point of view, that is a lot of times, uh, Sanderson's it's more of a removed third person right that we have POV chapters but they're more like POV characters it's not like it's not as tight of a POV as like a uh, George R. R. Martin Mm -hmm. um, where you're kind of in their head all the time Um, you know and he writes it a little bit more removed and he does a really good job of like not doing that thing of like you know describing women in great great detail and men in, in lax detail but when I am in a character's head, it's almost like none of his characters are horny. And it's like, if you're going to, you got to have some of your characters got to be horny because there are horny people in the world. And if you're going to be in that character's head, Brandon, you're going to have to write some of their horny thoughts. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, like, Shallan has up to Wayne is this horniest character. Shallan's probably a close second, not close, distant second. <laughs> Um, you know, in later story books, I definitely describe it more. So he's definitely like opening up to it for sure. I think he's just like, he's a nerd. He's a nerd. And he's also just like a more, I think he's a more liberal dude than like his. Yes. I think he's, he's very careful and I respect his carefulness, but I think, I think in certain circumstances it does him a disservice. Well, and it's, it's, it's a carefulness because of that, but it's, you know, that's giving him a lot of credit. It's also a carefulness because of like the culture he is a part of, yes, right? He is, comes he's, from a very chaste, like he, he was seems like a Prudish guy. Yeah. He's a Prudish guy from a Prudish culture. And, you know, he has to be careful for his own personal life. Like what, how, how horny he shows it because, you know, he writes for the world, but, you know, he talks about how he was actually talking about the other day that he's trying to like scale back some of his description of violence because interesting starts to feel like, a little bit, you know, like violence isn't good. And, right. you know, that like, like, but I write action books. So like, how do I, you know, and it can get pretty gruesome. Like, you know, in this book, they're pulling metal out of people's bodies and shooting them with, coin. like, you know, how does he, where does he kind of draw the line there? And, and he's talks about in his company, he's got this 60 person company now in, in based in Utah and he employs basically friends and family, right? People in his community, and they were talking. He's got like a movie theater. That he shows a lot of movies into his staff, and they were talking about kind of some of like the the classic bad sort of like kind of like they were kind of like tra- trauma movies and stuff like that, like you know Toxic Avenger and and things that like both those guys on the podcast love. But he's like, I can't really show them in my theater because like that's just way way too much past like what most people's appetite for like yeah. violence and stuff it's is also in this a workplace. Culture. He can't be showing trauma True. films in the workplace. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but like, even once they got into like an interesting, interesting debate, actually, I was surprised because 
they were talking about depictions of violence versus depictions of sex, like in media and like the double standard there. And the one guy who's like probably a little bit more of a Mormon than Brandon than that sort of like, you know, at least in the sort of like more conservative way, he was like, well, it's different. Like, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says having lustful thoughts is just as, you know, as bad just like doing it where it doesn't say something about violence. The Sanderson was like, well, it's, you know, thou should not kill, thou should not, you know, commit adultery. Yeah, same thing, like whatever. And the guy was like, no, it's not. And I was like, oh, they can get like in a theological debate here, like on this podcast, they kind of pivoted. But, um, you know, there's dissent, right? Like, I think that's interesting to see in that you're not just leaning into, you know, the state, the first state to ban gender affirming health care in the country yet today or yesterday, whatever that happened. So it's like, it's just interesting. I give them, you know, you don't want to give people yeah. credit for like being good people. But when you think of like the Mayu that he's like in every day, I, yeah, it's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> and, and what he personally is going to feel comfortable writing. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I mean, uh, interesting, the theological debate, because it's like, right. But I'm, I can write about characters who commit sins, right? Mm-hmm. I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But there is the act of writing it a sin in and of itself. Right. It's like, does it get you horny? That's bad. Whereas it's just showing you violence is not necessary. Well, and I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that, I mean, I think what, you know, I think what Christ said was that, like, uh, you can sin in your mind, right? Like, if you the, basically, like, to have a lustful thought is as much of a sin as committing a lustful act. I would think that that would apply to all sins, not just lust. I have a feeling. You would think. But um, but I think, I mean, for me, the big thing about, you know, the descriptions of violence, and I think that's a good point, and I've been thinking about this myself, and, you know, because uh, we just keep having all the mass shootings, and, you know, there's, you know, been some interesting conversations online about, like, all right, look, if if guns are off, just for the sake of conversation, if, if, if gun control is off the table, what do you do? And one of the things I keep coming down to is that, like, I think culturally speaking in our art, we have a problem with what I'm going to call cathartic or therapeutic violence. Sure. Which is where there's a character in a movie, almost always a dude, who starts the movie sad and then kills a bunch of people. And in the act of killing a bunch of people, he feels better. Right. <laughs> Like, that's kind of what John Wick is, right? He's sad about his dead wife, and then he kills everyone, and now he's not so sad anymore. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a thing that we should stop doing in our art, which is that, again, it's the cathartic violence. It is um, violence as therapy for men, Mm -hmm. um, where the character has some emotional issue but they resolve that issue mainly by killing people. Uh, and it's fucked up when you think about it that way. But watch movies. That's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, even like The Matrix, which is generally a good movie with good politics. It's, it is kind of like, hey, the pathway to enlightenment uh, is violence. Um, that's a little fucked up. And I think, you know, we need to start looking more critically at, um, you know, uh, we have so many movies where violence ends up being a net positive for the protagonist. Whereas in reality, for most people who aren't sociopaths, violence is a net negative for the violence doer. Right. You know, like, um, and that's very hard in a, again, like he's writing action adventure novels, like you gotta fight bad guys. And if 
Wax needs to go to three years of therapy every time he kills a bad guy. You don't you're not going to get a lot of action scenes in your mm-hmm. books. So I, it's, it's a tough needle to thread. I get it. But and I do think that Sanderson, um, his violence tends not to be cathartic for the character. So that's good. Um, yeah. Generally, and, it's not. You know, generally yeah. it does have sort of some, you know, sometimes it can be a little like and that's where I get that's where I get torn. Right. Because I'm like. You know, if, if you kind of if you describe it more in detail, then it feels more real and like impactful because if like, example, a, a lot of this in this book, a very minor like writing complaint I had is it's like, you know, wax, the, the short term for what wax is called is a coin shot. And one of the main methods they have of doing violence is he takes coins out of his pocket and he magnetos them super fast into people's heads, which is like pretty fucking brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and he just does that all the time. And it's just like. He just coin shot that guy. It's like, yeah, he just blew that guy's head. He just shot that guy. He in just the head, killed basically. a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they use guns and stuff, too. So it's kind of the same thing. But it's just like it just feels different for some reason. And like he doesn't describe it a lot. And I'm like, I feel like it's, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you're almost res- like your responsibility to describe the violence because then it like makes it real as opposed to just like, oh, and then he it's like Star Wars violence. Like, oh, they got shot and like fell yeah. over. And it's like, OK, well, but like, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I, I've been thinking a lot about that, too, because I've been you're going to laugh at me, Greg, but. Uh, they had, I, you were, you were too, too old for Power Rangers. Correct. I was not. I was four when the first season of Power Rangers came out in 1983. And oh I was boy. the prime candidate. Uh, they just announced they're doing a 30th anniversary special on Netflix, which, and they're bringing back some of the original actors from 1993 and four to do like a scripted, you know, one hour, you know, hour and a half, like kind of movie thing. And I'm like. <laughs> Okay, that's kind of cool. Um, and I've been feeling very like nostalgic, maybe in the not so great way we've talked about in the past on here. But I was like, I kind of want to like rewatch some power. Like, just like what what it has this like lingering memory in my mind, you know, just like being this like very special thing as a kid. And I've been my friend is also kind of in the same boat, and he's a little bit a little more into like the Power Rangers culture, which is a thing. Um, and he like put together it's all on YouTube, and he put together like a you know. Here's the the plot beats you need to see and like the important stuff and the good episodes playlist for me. I've kind of been watching some Power Rangers and I'm just thinking about, you know, violence for kids and violence and storytelling and, you know, how much everything like almost everything I consumed as a kid was like fighting. Right. Yeah. And it's like that was even before video games were even like really a thing. Right. You weren't even doing it. But, you know, you go outside, you play swords, you play army, you play whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's hard because you're just like, well, I don't think I'm a murderer because of that. So clearly it's not a definitive causation. No. But how do you handle it more responsibly? And when do you? And, you know, I've heard people at work having debates about when to show their kids Star Wars or, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, you know, we don't do guns in the house at all. And like. Well, you know, some people are like, well, we don't do guns, but we'll do fake guns, like laser guns. It's like, you know, how do you navigate that? I'm sure as a father, you're thinking about it, too. Right. But yeah. Um, and and luckily, Charlotte isn't isn't too interested in uh, that sort of stuff. Um, she likes, you know, she's she's more interested in, in princess stuff now. Um, mm-hmm. But I also noticed that there is just in terms of general kids entertainment, like there are a lot more things targeted at boys because most of the 
you know, action stuff was targeted at boys when we sure. were kids. Um, but there are a lot more things targeted at boys that are not as like violence focused. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, which is great. Um, I don't I mean, look, violence is entertaining. It's exciting. It's always been exciting. I'm not advocating for violence free media, but I think that there is a responsibility in showing uh, the emotional consequences of violence and um i i think the worst thing you can do is portray violence as uh um fun or therapeutic Mm -hmm. now i think that i i think it's absolutely possible to thread that needle carefully and show violence you know if you can if you can uh abstract it enough either through you know a very cartoonish presentation or, um, you know, you completely, you know, the bad guys are all robots and that kind of stuff. Like, I do think you can you can still do it, but I think you need to be careful. Um, and, you know, and I, I think that. OK, so, for example, I'm watching a show. It's on Hulu right now. Um, I had no idea this was happening, um, but I am absolutely in love with it. It's uh, it's called Trigun Stampede. They they just Trigun was an anime and a, a manga back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I adored it at the time. Um, like it was on Adult Swim or Toonami or whatever. Um, uh, I adored it at the time. And then they just like made a new one with absolutely amazing animation. That's like two and a half D um, incredible action sequences. Every freaking frame of it is amazing. Um but one of the big themes of Trigun is the main character, Vash the Stampede, is like this incredible gunman, but he's also like a pacifist because he's traumatized and he doesn't want to kill people. He really, really doesn't want to kill people. But because of the way the show is put together, you can have a show with these really incredible, awesome action sequences, but still feel the traumatic effects of the violence on everyone involved. And it is at one it is it can do both like it can be this like operatic uh like ballet i've seen that word written but <laughs> uh like celebration of like action but doesn't glorify the violence mm-hmm. glorify the killing if that makes sense yeah so i think it can be done if it's done carefully and you and the action can be incredibly satisfying, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make it seem like something you would want to try or something that is uh, like whenever he draws his gun, it's a burden for him. Mm-hmm. We see that we want to watch him draw that gun because we know cool shit's going to happen when he does. But we also understand that it's a burden. Um, and so something like that, I think, is absolutely possible, but it's a little harder than just choreographing a whole bunch of cool gunfights in John Wick. And I love watching those gunfights, but I wish we lived in a world where um, uh, killing 60 people in a nightclub isn't a form of therapy for John Wick. Right. Because I think that you see enough of those and you get that idea in your head that there is something transcendent about killing people and that there are certain emotional states that can only be remedied by hurting people. Um, I think if you see enough of that and if you're an unhinged enough person, now I've got a really dangerous scenario. And I think that the more we can do, the, the better. Yeah. Although I will also say that I would not list that as the primary cause for 
No, it certainly is not. Action. Again, <laughs> all of this thinking came up with a in a thought experiment where you cannot you cannot control people's access to weapons. What are things you would do? This is on that list. The number one thing to reduce mass shootings is just make it so that in America, um, it, it you, you can't get the weapon you need to do the mass shooting. Like it's obvious. I know it's obvious. That's the number one thing to do. It would be so easy if somebody had a little bit of courage. Yeah. And not to mention all the other cultural problems we have that yes. layer in to make. But some- I sure. Absolutely. I'm saying this is one factor among many. But in the conversation of our media and what could be done about our media to make us a less violent culture generally. Yeah. I think that that's a big piece of it, because as men, one of the like we are programmed uh, at least you and I growing up in the 90s and 2000s uh, still programmed to basically have two emotions, which is angry and laughing. And as a result, we turn every emotion that is not angry or laughing into angry or laughing because it's really the only way we know how to channel it. Um, and then we're also taught that uh, gen- that that when people do violence, they stop being angry. And mm. that doesn't necessarily always add up to a school shooting, but it certainly adds up to a lot of black eyes and domestic violence. That is true. Um, and, you know, some of those black eyes in, in domestic violence turn into shootings. Yep. And some of those shootings turn into rampages. And while there are lots of other things we can do, I just again, within the larger cultural conversation, we one of our problems with violence is that we portray it as therapy for men. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And like the, the vengeance aspect of that, right? Yeah. Batman. Don't do this thing. You'll feel better. <laughs> um, you'll feel better about your parents getting murdered if you just beat up the Joker one more time. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Good points. Points all around. Um. But anyway, what I really want to talk about is the mechanics of investiture. Because that's Jesus really Christ. What we're, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, this is great. I had a really yeah. great conversation. Um, highly recommend checking. You know, I think Miss Bourne is a series I recommend to anyone for uh, Sanderson. Um, I think that it's the most approachable, the most interesting, probably the because it is a little more like action adventure oriented than like the pure high fantasy of like Stormlight. Yeah. Um, a little more approachable in that way. And uh, I think his writing has generally only gotten better i think certainly certainly his moment to moment writing has gotten a lot better i i I, now maybe lost metal is a bit of a fluke but maybe he's having a little bit of a harder time like putting the big picture together yeah the self self self-editing the big picture because i would definitely say that well it's weird because i think his writing is getting better but yeah the big picture may be getting a little worse is that you know there's four stormlight books out way of kings is great you know um Words of Radiance is is maybe even better, but then Oath, Oathbringer, you know, it's good. You know, they're all good. I like it all, but I'll, you know, read them so fast every second of it. But, you know, it's like, OK, you know, and then Rhythm of War is just like, OK, so you're really doing this thing now, aren't you? Like, you're really going down this route, you know, and the nice thing is he puts out so much shit that you'd be like, well, I'll just read something else. <laughs> he writes this, that's different and, you know, like a little more and, you know, off in this world. And I'm curious to see how he handles some of this, like, ghostwriting stuff because he did it for he has a separate series called um a satanic series it's uh first book is called can't remember um yeah, yeah. uh it's not cosmere it's a sci-fi series about a girl and her oh um, yeah that's right yeah Skyward is what it's called um he had he wrote the third book recently the fourth book which last book comes out this year i think and but he had he did some like novellas but he had someone else write it 
And I was like, damn, I like these better. <laughs> like these are great. So, you know, he's such an idea guy that I think if anyone can pull off the like, I almost call it you know, like a corporate approach to writing, right? Like or not corporate, but more of a community based like storytelling. It's like, well, I've got to tell all these things, like all these ideas. You go off and take this planet for a bit, Dan well, or whoever. And like, that's cool. And, and you know, if you think about it, like, uh, you know, if, if you hand a ghostwriter an outline and say, here's all the stuff you need to do, they're going to write that outline. They're not going to go down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. of, oh, you know, as I was writing this scene, I had a really cool idea for what if these two powers and what, you know, like um, the, it, it, it it's going to be more focused, I think, just naturally because... The ghostwriter, yeah, they're not going to be chasing as many uh, shiny objects as the original writer might because their job is to write to the outline, you know, mm-hmm. and um, they might have a cool idea. Maybe they'll pitch it. But generally speaking, you know, I feel like if you're a ghostwriter, your incentives are to uh, finish that thing in the least amount of time, you know. Get it to spec, get it to fit the outline. But, you know, um, there aren't direct incentives for you to be like, I'm going to put a bunch of my own spin in this. Right. Or right. like, I'm going to suggest new ideas for new characters to the uh, uh, to the to the to the to the lead author. Mm-hmm. Your incentive is like, I'm getting paid whatever dollars to write this thing. And if I can write it in two months instead of three, that's gravy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, just to be materialist about it. So, yeah, they're not going to chase as many shiny objects as he might, because for him, he's like, I'm going to write this thing. And like, but if I there's a cool thing I come up with that might make the book more interesting or that might set me up for some other book. And the ghostwriter's not thinking about that shit. They're just trying to get it done. Mm-hmm. You get it done right. But you get the idea. So, uh, yeah, maybe the ghostwriter is what he needs. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm curious because and this podcast uh, partner Dan Wells, he has been made chief narrative officer in the company, <laughs> which is a cool title um, to help just like write more stuff and and I don't know what else. It's a brand new thing, but uh, very curious, very curious. It's just if you're gonna take a ma- this is the way to do it. If you're gonna try and make this massive thing, you can't just do it all yourself, George. Uh, it's okay to hire someone. He's got he's got someone who's literally just like. They're the canon expert. Their job is to have this wiki memorized. And he can call and be like, what did I say about blah, blah, blah? Like, well, you said, okay, cool, thanks. And like, that's their job, <laughs> which sounds hard, but fun. Um, but yeah, so, all right. Did we do it? We did the Lost Metal? We did it. We did the Lost Metal. Okay. And then I think, what's our plan? We're going to maybe do maybe talk about some some mans that may or may, or may not be ants after in the, in the month of February. Does that, is that movie comes out in the February? Yes, it comes out in two weeks. Two and a half weeks. And then that's what we'll do. Next time we'll talk about the Ant-Man quantum mania. I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. It looks fine. It looks fine. I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't really been like, like, uh, you know, like following every bit of it. Cause you know, I'm like, yeah, look, I I like the Ant-Man movies. I, this one will probably be fine. I I'm, I'm liking more and more now going into movies blind Mm -hmm. of just being like, yeah, this is the kind of movie I want to see. Let's just, fucking go watch it you know rather than like watch every trailer and read every like preview write up you know it's like yeah, yeah. let's just go in and get some surprises and you know uh let's see so, some yeah. modok there is a modok in this movie i'm <laughs> cautiously optimistic about it yeah the guy one of the writers said yeah i went a little big with modok i hope that they uh, don't fire me from the next movie <laughs> 
I was like, okay, come on, you're putting up, you're putting up, you're putting a Modoc in a movie. Like you gotta make it Modoc. Like big. there's no way to not go big with Modoc. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's just my that's that. Don't worry about that. That's my floating head guy who hates everything and shoots purple lasers out of his forehead. Duh, it's <laughs> fine. No, it's just a cameo. No, you you gotta. <laughs> We gotta we gotta sit with Modoc a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, it's it's. I think that hopefully, I'm hoping that Marvel has course corrected a little bit from some of the. You know, nothing was terrible in Phase Four. Well, maybe a couple, of things, but terrible for MCU quality. And I hope that maybe they regrouped a little. COVID, you know, disruptions and reorderings and stuff have been ironed out. Black Panther was pretty good. Overall, I think that, you know, I'm just hoping they're back on track a little bit with this. And this is going to set up. Sounds like a lot. So I'm ready. Me too. All right. Well, that's what we'll do next time. So so, watch the Ant-Man and then tune in to see how much we like the Ant-Man. Ant-Man. Ants. (laughs) All right, buddy. See ya. See ya.